0: G. It's the Airline Pilot Guy.
1: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 322. Yeah,
0: he's in the sky. It's the Airline
1: Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from the ABG Headquarters studio in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on May the 4th, 2018. Today's episode, an Airbus lands on a not-yet-opened runway in Vietnam, a WC-130 crashes near Savannah, more 737 cabin window cracks, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tail, one of our aircraft is missing, so get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 322 is ready for pushback. Hello, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guys show. It's an aviation podcast where aviation experts and aviation enthusiasts and everything in between, like me, come every week to discuss flying and other things. And joining me today to help do that from her beautiful lakeside cottage in South Carolina, Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph.
2: Hey, that's me. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Glad to see you again. Um, Seems like I just saw you here not that long ago.
1: but It wasn't.
2: No, not really. Very excited to be back for uh, 322. Looking forward to a great show tonight.
1: Sweet. Looking forward to it as well. And also joining us, from his country estate outside of London, professional photographer, former AF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain
3: Nick. Good evening, Jeff. Uh, it's a bit of a time delay here in London of two seconds, <laughs> or I didn't press my mute button. Uh, <laughs> it's lovely it works, to be back on the show. Yeah, I do <laughs> Lovely to be back on the show. Great to uh, be taking part again. Looking forward to the next three hours. I am as well. And also joining
1: us from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier and captain of a tri-tune on Lake Altoona, Captain Dana.
4: Well, good afternoon, or good evening, or good morning, wherever you're listening, and whatever time you're listening. And uh, may the fourth be with you. On this episode, may the fourth be with you. So, anyways, glad to be back. And uh, might be short lived this evening. I get got to get back to my studying, but we'll, uh, we'll we'll join in for a little bit tonight. So, looking forward to whatever I can partake in. Well, we're glad that you were able
1: to join us for a bit on. 322. I tried to find a picture of a an Airbus 322 but uh, couldn't find any. I no,
3: should have gone yet? with the uh, Star Wars reference. May the fourth be with you, particularly since tomorrow is the revenge of the fifth. I hear that, yes, but more importantly for those of us here in the
4: U.S. Cinco de Mayo. De Mayo. Tequila! And I'm working. I'm not a happy elements. boy.
1: Yeah, if
2: you're a fan of Arrested Development, today is Cinco de Cuatro.
1: Ah, that is Cinco de Cuatro. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I've forgotten about that. That's a great show, by the way. If if you've never heard of it or haven't seen it, uh, you you should definitely watch it. It's on, uh, I think Netflix. Netflix, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. De Cuatro. That must be for Audi drivers. Yeah. But yes. when you think about it, though, that's the fifth of four. The
2: fourth. Yeah. <laughs> the fourth. <laughs> it's, a, it's a made up holiday. They admit it. Yeah, but I but mean, everything else is a real holiday. So
1: <laughs> on the show, at least. What really is a real holiday? Come on.
2: Uh, you know, there's a lot of invented holidays these days.
1: There mm-hmm. There are. For sure. Well, hey, it's great seeing everyone. We're going to go ahead and uh, get right on into our intro section, catch up with everybody here, and then we'll move on to the news section. And then we have a lot to talk about in feedback, uh, kind of focusing on a little bit or the aftermath of the Southwest 1380 incident. Now uh, we know a little bit more about that, so uh, we'll we'll have a lot of discussion, a lot of feedback regarding that. So let's start with well, last week, last. Thursday, to be exact. Steph and I were sitting next to each other in her beautiful lakeside cottage, and uh, we recorded the show, and then she went off to the airport and flew to, is it Hamburg or Hamburg? Neither. 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 Potato.
2: Let's see if I can actually get it right. I should have recorded someone saying it. That would have been smart, right? Yeah. But it's Hamburg. 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 So so the A is somewhere in between the the Hamburg and the Hamburg, it's neither of those. It's kind of in between. And if you're actually saying it like a local, it's Hamburg.
3: Is that like Hamburg. resistance is futile? Hamburg? Yeah. Bah Hamburg. Hamburg. <laughs> no.
1: I'm it. probably still
2: not saying it correctly, but that's what it sounded like to me. Okay.
1: So, yeah. Hamburg. We got some uh, feedback from, I think, uh, Einzweig dry Germans.
2: Excellent. They'll and, do a better uh, job. Than-
1: they uh, said basically, well, you Americans say Hamburg, but uh, we Germans, uh, in our mother tongue, say Hamburg. More of a ha ah. Yeah. But anyway, so you know, who cares really? Um, <laughs> the uh, of course they do. But they do. Uh, uh, yeah, so I, I did a little bit of uh, research on the. Uh, I, I mentioned something about the hamburger being invented at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis not exactly right uh, they it did gain national recognition there but the origin of the hamburger uh, remains unclear and uh, there there are some references to its mention as early as 1758 uh, but uh, uh, so nobody really knows for sure and nobody cares but it tastes good and that's the most important thing
4: exactly what y- what year was Roadkill invented
1: Roadkill I don't know uh, probably mm-hmm. shortly after roads
4: were invented. Probably well, shortly that after the wheel. It's probably in the same time hamburgers invented because after roadkill came hamburgers.
1: Okay, let's see. Uh, just I can find on. Uh, this <laughs> thing here. Down to 40%. <laughs> May, uh, make I'm a time mark you know. uh, uh, mark here to eliminate that comment from Dana. Let me make a note. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep it in there because... Uh,
4: it's we'll, silly and stupid. All
1: of us here at the APG like things raw. Wow. Yeah.
2: So anyway, Hamburg. Yeah. yeah. Hamburg.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. Getting me, getting us back on track.
2: A, is a lovely, lovely city. I spent all of uh, like two and a half days there, which was very nice. Just over two and a half days. Um, wonderful hosts there. People I've met before for the most part. Um, I think I kind of mentioned there's a kind of runner exchange between Hamburg and Chicago, which are sister cities, and they do that for the marathons in both cities. So um, having done the Chicago Marathon many times and having connections there, um, got to know these folks over the past couple of years, and they were very kind to welcome us and host us. And uh, they had all kinds of fun events planned for the whole weekend. We did a lot of um, eating at very nice restaurants and very nice brunch and tour of the city. And gosh, what else? All kinds of stuff. The marathon, marathon, happened. yeah. The reason why you were um, there, right? The reason why I was there in the first place. So polar opposite weather conditions from Boston 13 days earlier where it was a freezing monsoon. Um it was sunny, not like hardly a cloud in the sky, about 66 degrees Fahrenheit, which is actually a little too hot for my taste for running. Um but it was it was a good race. Um I ended up finishing exactly six seconds slower than I did in Boston. So over the course of 26.2 miles, I'll take that. Nice. Pretty
1: consistent. Yeah, very consistent. Excellent.
2: Yeah, it was a good trip. It was a, it was a quick trip. Yeah, whirlwind.
1: Um, kind of, you left on Thursday and you were back on what day? Monday? Mon- Monday afternoon. Mm-hmm.
2: And um, did have a chance to, on the way back, I had a quick stopover at London Heathrow. I had a chance to meet up with Brian Coleman, Pasadena Brian, for um, just a quick bite to eat before I got on my flight. He had a much longer layover. We were actually both in Hamburg and ended up not seeing each other we actually said okay well maybe monday morning before we get on our flights which are leaving at you know almost the same time we'll we'll manage to see each other well i was running late to the airport he was running late to the airport and neither one of us saw the other one even though our gates were right next to each other
1: really so well you know luckily we have that uh recording that you made Uh, let me play it right here bring it up Um, yeah didn't
0: do that
2: i
1: can't find it where is it sorry (laughs) That's okay. <laughs> we need to kind of cut down on those things anyway. Yeah, right? uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. You're doing
2: well, and um, yeah, good to see him.
1: Yeah, well, excellent. Uh, we we received some uh, feedback from Brian regarding that. I'm not sure if we're going to get to it in today's feedback, but hi, Brian, Pasadena, Brian. Um, let's see. What else, Steph? Anything else?
2: Um, Pretty, I mean, no, like, what been, else could
1: there be? I mean, you're probably just
0: been
2: getting, you know killed at work this past week since i've been back it's been very busy um but looking forward to the weekend again and a little bit of relaxation this time around excellent a lot planned
1: okay well very good um captain nick how have you been hello sir sir. hello have you been busy like lately uh uh, hosting various aviation podcasts
3: (laughs) yeah well i just did a session with pt uk uh, I was supposed to be on last week, but I couldn't make it. Uh, and uh, so I agreed to go on this week instead. Great fun, of course. Uh, our great friends over there, and they do a fine podcast, so that's been very enjoyable. But it's going to be a bit of a long evening, so if you see me uh, with my mouth wide open and my head back, I'm not sleeping, I promise you. Um, yeah, it's been uh, another day uh, just ticking over the uh, the calendar, waiting uh, for uh, my Chance to uh, start flying again. That'll happen in uh, about a month's time, or perhaps just a little over. Uh, in the meantime, I we mentioned uh, my talk at the uh, School of St Benedict's last week. Uh, this week, uh, not a lot. And but i have been looking ahead to a possible UK meetup. We don't have them in the UK very often, um, but uh, last one I was at was Goodwood uh, Airport. Um, I was wondering if anyone would be interested in going to uh, the RAF Museum at Hendon for a look around there. They have, of course, uh, uh, improved their exhibits and got a special one for the uh, 100th... uh, um, Anniversary of the formation of the Royal Air Force. And um, uh, the date that is looking favourite is the 22nd of uh, May. So if anyone's free and can join us on the 22nd, that would be fantastic. I'll be tweeting that out. Uh, I'm expecting sort of mid-morning kickoff and mid-afternoon wind-up. So basically uh, over lunch, I'm sure they've got some eating facilities there at uh, Hendon. Uh, But uh, it uh, is a midweek day. I think the 22nd is a Tuesday. So if you can get uh, free on that Tuesday and take a sickie, uh, please come and join us. You'd be very welcome.
1: Well, that is uh, being discussed on the Slack team, uh, the Slack app. And if you haven't joined us there, you, you should, because there you'd find information about The uh, upcoming meetup there in uh, the UK, as well as other, uh, there are meetups happening all over the place. I I just looked at it uh, earlier today, and it's great to see a lot of activity there regarding that. Speaking of uh, meetups, I may not, we talked about this a couple months ago, about that um, North Georgia um, Mountain Egg Fest, which has nothing to do with eggs. It's a big green egg, a smoking thing. And, uh, looks like I'm not going to be able to make it because my wife is driving up to Elon university to help my daughter, um, move all of her things out of her, her, uh, apartment. And, uh, so I need to be home to take care of, uh, the dog and the house and stuff. So unfortunately can't make that. I think that's the uh, was that again? 19th, I think of, um, of may. Um, I'm looking at that the is, wall here at my calendar name. and it's, it's still on March. <laughs> Whoops.
2: Yeah. No, that's the Saturday, not uh, not this Saturday, not the next one, the one after that.
1: Yeah, that would be, right. yeah, eighteen, nineteen, 19, Saturday the 19th, I think, is when that is 7th. So it's the 18th, 19th. I, re- I was looking forward to that because I love good barbecue, but uh, unfortunately I can't make it. So, But hey, that doesn't mean that any of you listening uh, can't head up there anyway and uh, meet up, make a recording, tell us how, how much fun you had drinking beer and eating barbecue. All right. Um,
3: anything else, uh, Captain Nick? Uh, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm really just waiting for the lovely weather to arrive. It's promised for this uh, bank holiday weekend. Steak ready for the barbecue. It won't be up to Dana's standard, but it'll be fine for us. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a, a good, fun weekend. Uh, it will balls. be delicious. I hope so. The bowls season has indeed started. First uh, match is on Sunday. So very soon though. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Dana. Now I know you've been busy uh, flying trips and also maybe in the books uh, trying to uh, freshen up for your upcoming training, which starts tomorrow, I believe.
4: Yes, that's correct. Sat on my last trip uh, on Sunday as a first officer. And got to fly with one of my best buddies as well, um, Gary, and we had uh, really an uneventful trip as in, in regards to the flying. It was clear and a million the entire entire trip. I mean, I just couldn't ask for better weather. Yeah, it was nice. Um, yeah, so we spent a uh, night in Cincinnati, which I honestly don't think I've uh, I've uh, ever overnighted downtown Cincinnati. Uh, in all the years I've been here, and, and it was a very delightful experience. The uh, food was uh, went to an Irish and English pub. I guess that's kind of odd that they've both been called the same thing, but uh, yeah, Irish and English are very different, as we know. But uh, the food was fantastic, and had a couple of uh, Irish whiskeys, of course. And then uh, send-off was uh, the last night in Sarasota. And we're, uh, my friend um, Bill Noro he's a captain with us as well. He lives down in Sarasota. Happened to have a longer overnight than we did. He had about a 20-hour layover, and we only had an 18-hour. But anyways, he came, picked us up, went to his house. He had an awesome spread with food and a couple of liquid libations and a pool, and his wife was very gracious. So Gary, myself, Bill, and his first officer, I think it was Pete, Terrible names, names. Didn't write it down. Uh, anyways, he uh, he had all four of us hung out and had a great time and reminisced and and talked about pilot stuff and and aviation and what I you know going through my upgrade and what I can expect and so forth and so on. So uh, for those uh, folks that are Patreons, um, I went ahead and did a three-part series, recording um, each day as it progressed uh, through the trip. Uh, with emotions and feelings and details uh, far more than that. So I would, if you have the opportunity to listen to it, I hope you do. Uh, so that was my last trip, and my uh, last day was a uh, round trip to Miami. Um, and Gary let me fly uh, most of the flying, actually. I he, let fly? get, he let me fly? He let me fly. I know, right? And so my last uh, landing that I get to remember as a first officer was, uh, was uh, uh, um, well, I'm not going to brag about it, but it was perfect. So, anyways, um, that's about it. Got my FA medical out of the way this week, and uh, got some results from my doctor about my physical conditioning after I've lost uh, twenty-four and a half pounds at this point. And looks like my uh, my 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 medical uh, is uh, well secured now because I, of course, uh, uh, as as. Uh, Nick knows uh, diabetes is, is a dangerous thing as a pilot, and it's been you know running on both sides of my family. And I worry about that, but my A1C was 5.5. You can't get much better than that, so um, looks like the diet's really working for me. And uh, what else? Oh, Bill and Bev in, uh, up there in the Norfolk area. Uh, really big shout-out to uh, Bill for writing a very nice uh, feedback on my uh, three-part series and uh, my upcoming training, which starts tomorrow go a little bit into that uh let's see i have seven seven sessions uh one in the ftd then then six in the simulators the full flight simulators and i'm working the next 11 of 11 of 13 days in a row so basically i have one day off on wednesday upcoming then i go back in the sim do my check ride next saturday sunday off for mother's day which was nice them. And then I have a start a four-day trip, and uh, that will be my first OE. That will be the first time I fly as captain with passengers. So looking forward to that. Going to be a busy uh, couple of weeks. Certainly, uh, if you are in the cadre and listening in the Patreon, um, you'll be able to hear some of my information uh, as I go through. As I have time, I'm going to uh, record some uh, crew logs, and I'm not sure whether I'll be on the show in the next week or two. It's going to be pretty hectic, but uh, certainly the crew logs will be available so people can hear how it's going. So that's where I'm at. All right. Great. Look forward to
1: hearing from, about it. Uh, let's see. Moving on quickly here uh, after uh, we recorded last week, Steph went off to the airport and I did too. I stayed in a uh, hotel near the airport uh, before uh, heading up to Elon University. The next day um, and I met up with my youngest daughter Natalie at Elon and uh, it was the meaningful men weekend and uh, there was a lot of eating a lot of drinking a lot of bowling golf and kickball oh and did I, did I mention a lot of drinking uh, there was a lot of that too I think I did yeah um, you no know, you, did, you didn't mention the drinking how much drinking was there <laughs> a little bit
3: okay. just a little yeah oh,
1: it was nice. a great time bowling of all things was the most fun I think and uh, pretty much nobody was and really.
4: Uh, well, he, he doesn't remember drinking because he drank so much. He doesn't remember how much he drank. That's, That's
2: the, the only drunk. way to actually do bowling, though. It, it was
4: fun. Yeah, we had some good beer uh,
1: at the uh, bowling alley and uh, and it was a good, good time. Everybody had a great time.
4: Did you have pizza, too? No.
1: no. And uh, it was between uh, lunch and dinner. So. All right. Um, what else? Uh, future meetups. Nick talked about uh, the uh, the UK uh, meetup, and then just today, um, Micah said, "Hey, are you thinking about maybe coming to uh, the Udvarhazy Center where they have that uh, event?" And I've forgotten exactly what it's called again. The um, mm, let's see, the uh, shoot. Well. It doesn't matter what's going on at Udvarhazy because it's actually the Geeks Five Hundred episode, decade of podcasting celebration on the sixteenth of June at the Udvarhazy Center. And they what is that event that they call? I, I don't. I guess he didn't mention it here.
2: Innovations in flight. Thank
1: you. That's it. Did he just tell us that in the no. chat room? Oh, okay. Oh, no, he good. did now just now. But okay. Yes, innovations of flight. Thank you, Micah. Um, so I thought, Hmm, well, I, I haven't bid yet for June and I don't see anything on my schedule at this moment that would keep me from coming up there. So we're going up there. And, uh, so I'm planning on heading up there on Friday, the 15th and, uh, hanging out with the uh, great geeks, that great, uh, long running professional podcast, uh, the, uh, airplane geeks celebrating their 500, wow, 500 episodes. That's amazing.
3: Wow, that is good.
1: Yeah, so, uh, hey, if any of you are up in the area, or even if you're not, uh, plan on uh, heading to Washington, D.C., well, Dulles Airport, basically, Chantilly, uh, Virginia, I
3: believe. Yeah, anyway. But, I bet they can't uh, manage a 50%. Uh, oh, you know, they're way beyond 50%. Come accuracy. on. No, <laughs> they
1: get they get scared when they get close to 90%. Oof,
2: yeah, wow. when, it, when it dips that low. Dips that
1: low. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> different, different league entirely. Different class.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, great guys and uh, look forward to seeing them. So that's about it from me. Anything else from y'all before we move on? Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, no, but a little preview. I was hoping to go flying last night, kind of late, and scheduling didn't work out right, but I did play around a little bit with the ADS-B receiver that you brought for me from... Sean. Sean, thank mm-hmm. you. And it's all hooked up to my iPad and ForeFlight and appears to work very well, and hopefully I'll be out on Monday night to go, to do that flying that I was planning on doing yesterday, weather cooperating, and we'll test it out, and I'll have another... I'll have a report
1: on that. Oh, so, that'll be awesome. Yeah. Excellent. Well, fantastic. Well, I think now it's time for us to talk about the Coffee Fund cadre, and uh, let's bring in the Jeff Smith Joppa Jive.
3: Johnny, how about
1: some more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea.
3: I love the APG
0: community. Coffee and tea
1: and the Java and me. A A cup,
0: cup, a cup, a a cup, a cup, cup, a cup. cup,
1: cup. Ooh, falsetto's not working today. I'll have to edit that out. (laughs) So the Coffee Fund is your way to support the APG show financially. And you can find out about how to do that toward the end of this little musical interlude. Uh, We have two ways, classic and the uh, patron method via Patreon. Since the last episode, Kevin Cole used the Coffee Fun Classic method. Thank you, Kevin. And we have some new producers, uh, new patrons at Patreon. Uh, new producer level Bruce Tucky and Stuart Aslett, the one responsible for Thumbra a couple of years ago. And a new executive producer. He's moved from producer to executive producer by increasing his pledge. And that man's name is Bill Hunter. So thank you, everyone, for joining the Coffee Fun Cadre. Again, if you want to learn how you can become part of the Coffee Fun Cadre and listen to some of those crew logs that we talk about all the time here on the show, head over to airlinepilotguide.com coffee. You'll be happy that you did. And so will we.
5: Stand by for news.
1: All right, we'll start off with the uh, first item in the news folder. The case against two drunk pilots arrested at Glasgow Airport collapses. Uh, they were preparing to fly. The uh, alleged drunk uh, pilots were accused of preparing to fly a passenger plane under the influence of alcohol. They, uh, the case collapsed after their blood samples. They didn't collapse. <laughs> that would be bad. Uh, their case collapsed after their blood samples were destroyed at a prison. Lucky them, Mr. Perot, uh, 41, and Mr. Syed, 39, were arrested on the 18th of July in 2016 before they were due to take off the Air Transat flight from Glasgow to Toronto. Syed from Toronto was accused of performing an activity ancillary to an aviation function when he allegedly had 49 milligrams of alcohol in 100 milliliters of blood, more than double the limit of 20. Perot from the province of ontario faced the same charge with an alleged 32 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood an amount still under the legal driving limit of 35 milligrams and uh, they have they denied the charge and they were sent to a jail in scotland and uh, they had their blood sa- or part of their blood samples uh, they were uh, with them And when they checked in, they, you know, checked in all their valuables, including the blood samples. And uh, somehow uh, they, I guess, they didn't know what to do. The blood samples, and they they got lost or they got destroyed or something. So, oops. Lucky for them, and one of the people at the prison said, "Well, they told us it was okay to destroy it." And uh, Mister Perot said, "Uh, "No, I didn't get permission for my blood sample to be destroyed." He said he wanted his blood sample analyzed so the whole thing fell apart and now they're free to go now of course i don't know if they're going to be able to get a a job flying passenger airliners but um, at least they're not going to have to spend a lot of time in jail
3: well i uh, read a report to say that transat uh, were going to uh, reinstate them oh really there was no case to answer oh okay Um, But that was not in this particular piece, but it was in another news uh, piece. I can't remember exactly where it was now. But uh, it appeared that Transat were standing by them and saying, well, um, the guys uh, have done nothing wrong according to the law, so uh, we are not in a position to uh, um, suspend them or do anything to them. They're going to carry on flying for us. Well, very good.
1: The dailymail.co.uk apparently didn't have that little bit of information. That would have been helpful.
3: Thank you, Captain Nick, for that. Um, All right, moving on. I just wondered what the team's opinions on that were because uh, uh, we've got uh, two guys in EasyJet who uh, did a bit of um, uh, Snapchat. Videoing each other. Yep, using Snapchat who uh, were dismissed. And these two guys who were. um, there's certainly a, a, a weight of evidence, but not enough to bring a court case against them that uh, they would have bought the company's reputation into disrepute. Um, how do you guys feel about them going back straight into their jobs?
1: Well, if they had uh, somehow gone to prison and they lost the Snapchat feed, so there's no way to have evidence against them, then they, they would have been scot-free too. <laughs>
3: Yeah, they would have been. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I to think the, it, I think
2: it comes down to more of the legal component of it in this yeah, case. You know, yeah. the disrepute against the company is one thing. Um, but in this case, if it if they couldn't conclusively prove that they were in fact under the influence, you know, because it says allegedly correct. I mean mm-hmm. so um but if they didn't have the hard evidence for it and it was lost, then I think the pilots Against Transat could have had a strong legal case to get their jobs back as well.
3: So yeah, I think that's that's the situation. end of the legals.
2: No matter what they may or may not have done uh, before that flight, whether they were or were not um, allegedly intoxicated. Hopefully, going forward, that will not be an issue for them.
1: Well, I guess the moral to the story is don't snapshot and Snapchat and drink. At the same time,
3: (laughs) no, no, thats that's also a bad idea for different reasons. At the same time, (laughs) but I know what ninety percent of the other pilots will be uh, thinking. And
2: well, uh, yes, and I mean, I, I, you know, whether or not they're looked upon differently by their colleagues and coworkers is uh, completely different.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, as as many things happen in the court of law, uh, it's not always equally. You know, it's not always perfect. Enough. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's hit a miss. Yeah, um, yeah, but it does seem a little ironic. We agree, Captain Nick. All right, uh, moving on to the next one in the folder: Vietnam Airlines Flight seventy three forty four, mistakenly landed on a non operational runway at an airport in <laughs> Vietnam. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. Give pronounce. it a try. A try. <laughs> not trying, gam wrong.
2: I think that's perfect. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Probably not perfect. Excellent Vietnamese. (laughs) As far as anybody else knows, unless you're from Vietnam. Uh, Let's see. Uh, It doesn't matter how many passengers and crew members were aboard. Uh, The airplane was coming into the Nha Trang Cam Run International Airport, and the weather was good. Everything was working normally, equipment, all that kind of jazz. And uh, the aircraft landed on a runway that was still under construction and had not yet connected to the rest of the airport. It's not clear Oops. about the solution to bring the plane back to the airport. <laughs> so
2: Could they just take off and then land on a... I
1: think the, I the runway is currently oh, only 300 meters long. Oops. Only 300 meters of it were open. So this is an yeah. interesting one because uh, according to the captain's narrative, and this is from uh, the uh, Aviation Herald... Uh, according to the captain's narrative, the runway was marked two zero 0 with no crosses over the threshold or down the runway. The crew did notice that no runway lights, including Pappy's, were active. However, realized only after touchdown that the runway was still under construction and they brought the aircraft to a full stop. The charts in use did not depict the runway under construction. Now, I'm wondering if their company... Now, a lot of times uh, my company, and I'm sure, you know, many others will put out like a special page uh, to kind of cover airport construction and what you might encounter, including a runway that might be under construction. And I noticed also here in this account that there were no no NOTAMs listed as Simon uh, is wont to do usually. Uh, Perhaps he didn't have access to them, but I would imagine you would think that if an If a runway was under construction and there was a risk that somebody might mistake it for the correct runway, that they would have some kind of a NOTAM uh, describing the uh, risk, but I don't know.
3: Well, I've I've seen the chance. Um, There is a runway indicated there, but it's in a faint hash indicating that it's... uh, you know, either out of use or under construction or not available. But you can see an area that is depicted where the runway will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's obviously not an in use runway. It's right next door uh, the threshold, just a little bit further uh, down from runway 20. Apparently, both runways had runway 20 written on them. Uh, and the out of use runway didn't have uh, the international indicator that it's a disused runway, big white crosses on it so it was painted both runways were painted with the same number hmm. they hadn't got around to putting l and r left and right on them so i think uh, from one perspective uh this guy uh, was sort of led astray by the inadequacies of the uh markings on the airfield the old primrose path yeah uh whether they had the lighting on i don't know because i doubt they've got full lighting on this by runway which was in use for military aircraft and probably helicopters because it was only like the first 300 meters that were available yeah. um but not for the uh, civil side uh, but the fact that they hadn't got as far as uh, writing the proper markings on them and anyway uh the, a big no time came out about it but like on the second of May, several days after <laughs> oh, these guys. Quick, <laughs> quick! Put a no <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah.
0: That was yeah,
3: it's too late. On boss. this
2: runway that's <laughs> still under construction. Yep, like those other guys did a few days ago before we told yep. them not to. Uh,
3: and up to that point, there was a standing no term saying that there was a runway under construction. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, these guys have got a reasonable case for saying we were led astray.
1: Yeah, and. um it should be noted that the captain uh, was just hired in January of this year, and he was a uh, um, U.S. national. So um, I don't know, you know, what difference. So probably that makes. not familiar. Yeah. Great. Exactly. All right. Uh, we'll we'll uh, kind of keep our eyes and ears open for any updates on this case or this incident. Um, Speaking of keeping our eyes and ears open for developments in incidents, the uh, last, um, what was it? Not the last episode, but the one before, I don't know, maybe it was the last episode, but mm-hmm. the uh, Southwest um, 1380, flight 1380 with the uh, engine coming apart and, uh, or at least the uh, fan blade coming apart and uh, uh, inlet cowl uh, being, um, I don't know, what's the right word? Yeah. Um, Dislodged. Dislodged. Significantly yeah. torn up. Disrupted. Got all torn up. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, uh, following the uh, CFM International's latest recommendations, the FAA has, mand- F-A-A has mandated inspections for the CFM 567B fan blade population not covered by the Emergency Airworthiness Directive issued on the 20th of April. The new AD set for publication May 2nd, which was two days ago, and effective May 12th orders operators to conduct ultrasonic or eddy current inspections on CFM-567B fan blades before they reach 20,000 cycles. And it goes on to explain uh, some more stuff here. And that uh, AD now kind of is aligned with the uh, EASA-issued AD. And uh, so it, it is all but guaranteeing worldwide adoption by other civil aviation authorities. So that's good news. It means that all the uh, CFM-7 or 56-7B engines will at some point get inspections and to see if there are any other faulty blades out there. So just thought we'd mention that. We're going to talk a little bit more about those inspections and uh, more about that incident and the aftermath uh, in our feedback section. So with that, Unless you have anything to say about it right here. Is it
3: worth mentioning that uh, the blade was in fact contained, albeit uh, the cowling came loose, but the blade didn't get through the cowling. I think that's right. yeah. worth mentioning. Yep. Interesting. In,
1: in fact, uh, we'll, we'll, I think that's uh, one of the things that we'll cover in Excellent. feedback. Yeah. Okay. Got a lot of things to cover uh, via the, that incident in feedback. So with that, let's move on to uh, this incident, uh, D, we're looking at now. Wasaya uh, DH 8A at Thunder Bay on the 23rd of April, knocking on the cockpit's door. So, this Dash 8 100 registration Charlie Golf Alpha November Sierra performing flight 823 from Sioux Lookout, Ontario to Thunder Bay, Ontario. With 27 people on board, was on approach to Thunder Bay about 12 nautical miles before touchdown when there was a knocking on the cockpit door. The flight crew contacted the cabin via the intercom and was informed about a medical event in the cabin. Upon receiving landing clearance, the crew declared pan pan and requested medical services to meet the aircraft within the readback and continued for a safe landing. After the flight crew landed, they learned that the sole flight attendant was the Patient, <laughs> the ah, person since, having, the, yes.
2: Hence the knocking.
1: Like, yeah. And actually, I think the there were two nurses on board traveling as passengers and they were rendering first aid to the flight attendant. And apparently, one or both of them were the ones knocking on the door to, yeah. because they didn't know exactly how to contact the pilots in the cockpit. So, yeah. And in t- that
2: case, you only have the one flight attendant. So, how else do you get in touch with yeah. anyone else to know what's going on? So,
1: I don't know. Do that's what not- you got to do. I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, that that doesn't happen very often, I wouldn't imagine.
2: No. So. Fortunately.
3: Is that a case for never allowing flight attendants to uh, man a flight on their own? Well,
1: I guess. I don't know,
2: but it happens all the time on these, you know, small regional flights.
1: Yep. Yeah, less, under less 50, 50 seat or under. Yeah, 50. Uh, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, only one's yeah. required. I mean, this flight attendant, if there'd been uh, no one... Uh, uh, they had to look after them and they'd had a heart attack. They could have died because the passengers would have no way of ever alerting to the, the flight deck. Yep. Yeah, because they knock on the door, though, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, they, they were smart enough to. But, but,
1: no. <laughs> <somebody> <laughs> That's really the reason why I wanted to cover this one so I could play that. Need to go to the... Very good. Hey.
2: Well, and hopefully that flight attendant is okay. They don't really say.
1: No, they don't. So. Mm. Oh, well. Hopefully she's doing all right, or he. Uh, runway lights baffled pilots on night of San Francisco near Miss. You remember the uh, Air Canada flight coming into San Francisco International Airport last year, July of last year, and uh, they almost struck four aircraft on the ground. Uh, according to the preliminary report, uh, the NTSB has said that uh, that is a factor, construction lights on the Uh, runway or taxiway that was parallel to the uh, 28 right that they were operating on that evening. And uh, as the Air Canada plane approached the runway, the co-pilot thought something, quote, didn't look right, he told investigators. However, he wasn't certain what was wrong and was unable to process what he was seeing. The co-pilot told the captain who was at the controls to abort the landing and climb at the same time the captain decided on his own to do the same thing according to the NTSB. Seconds later, an air traffic controller radioed to the plane a command to cancel the landing. Pilots on a flight that arrived in San Francisco four minutes earlier told investigators that construction lights were so bright, we could not determine the location of the only runway open for landing that night. Uh, An adjacent parallel runway to the left of where they were cleared to land was under construction and closed. Both pilots on the previous flight, the one that said that it was hard for them to determine you know, what, where, the, where, where the uh, open runway was, they checked with their onboard instruments to ensure they were lined up for the proper runway. So apparently, this crew used their instrumentation to, you know, make sure they were aligned with the correct runway. And perhaps the incident aircraft, the Air Canada flight, did not. That's the implication I'm getting here. Um, there were some video released and i'm sure that many of you listening have already seen it but if not please refer to this uh incident in our show notes for episode 322 where you'll see a link to the uh, video that was from a surveillance camera and uh, wow <laughs> that's all i can say i need to find uh, the uh, proper sound effect here Wow. Wow. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, It was definitely, you know, it couldn't be the angle of the camera and everything else, but uh, they say Mm,
2: maybe, but it's. Well, how close did it get, Steph? Very, very, very close.
1: Yeah. It said that the plane was as low as 59 feet, 18 meters for y'all and everywhere else uh, from the ground as the pilots aborted the landing and tried to climb. The tail on a Boeing 787 that was first in line on the taxiway is almost 56 feet high. So, hey, there was a good three feet, one meter clearance.
2: Plenty of space. <laughs> I mean, it, it truly looks very, very close on the video. It's.
1: Yeah. Wow. It is uh, frighteningly uh, close. Uh, next in line was a Philippine Airlines A34300, a wide body jet with a tail that's about the same height or slightly higher than the 787s. So,. Uh, Anyway, so we all know the story. The uh, United 787 uh, pilots saw this guy coming in and going. Uh, does it look like he's lined on the run, lined up on the runway, or is he about to land on the taxiway? And then they said something on the radio, and uh, that kind of helped prompt, I think, the uh, the go around initiated by the pilots. Anyway, um, what do y'all think there? Mm. Scary.
3: Yeah. Very. Yeah. yeah.
1: Incredibly. All right, Uh, let's move on. Uh, The next item we have here, and this is a very sad story. And uh, I know you all talked about it in the live taping recording of the PTUK not two, three hours ago. uh, Nine dead after an Air National Guard WC-130 Hercules plane crashes in Georgia near Savannah. They had just taken off from the savannah airport i believe leaving uh and uh, they were leaving and uh, the irony is that this was to be its last flight they were heading out to davis Monthan uh to uh, retire the aircraft and uh they crashed and there's a video uh, another surveillance uh, video out there that is pretty horrifying uh, to see and uh, uh it's um it's clear that uh, the the aircraft was clean. And uh, it certainly appears to me that the airplane stalled or perhaps another one of those incidents uh, like the National Airlines 747 that crashed in uh, Bagram, I think, Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan.
2: uh, shift of uh, cargo. The the
1: shifting cargo and the CG uh, shift. Uh, I mean, it looks that way and it is a cargo airplane. It's possible they could have had some pallets of cargo On the uh, airplane that shifted, uh, you know, we're not sure, you know, it's just, just happened what yesterday, I believe. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And uh, there were nine uh, people on board, five crew members and four, I believe, passengers. I don't know if they were family members or what, but uh, anyway, um, if you want to uh, take a look at the video, there'll be a link in the show notes.
2: Yeah, very, very sad, Um, but I'm sure we'll get some more information about potential causes anyway uh sometime in the future i don't know when but
1: yeah they'll have to we'll put out a that. report within about a year i believe i was yeah. a, a air safety investigator in the air Force and uh, typically uh the they have a, a full year to do the investigation and come up with a final report but i'm hoping we'll be able to learn something about this before before a year runs out
3: yeah. I wonder what the uh, fatigue use on uh, an aircraft that is used on weather reconnaissance missions is like compared with the standard 130s. Yeah.
1: It's a pretty beefy airplane for sure. Oh, yeah. But uh, and it was an old one. It was one of the oldest ones out there. I think that a couple different articles mentioned that the airplane was like 60 years old.
3: Yeah. Um, well, it just, just makes me wonder. I mean, uh, in the military, I've, we've had… Uh, in the Air Force uh, incidents that occurred because an aircraft had changed role to uh, something that uh, wasn't being replicated by the fatigue modeling. uh, And uh, as a consequence, uh, you know, uh, wing spars failed and um, aircraft crashed. And and that was the
1: reason. I don't know. As uh, mentioned in the story, I don't know if it started out as a WC Model, But uh, that was, yeah. I believe, uh, what yeah. its role was um, in its last incarnation, uh, weather reconnaissance, like a hurricane hunter, uh, kind of a mission, um, Puerto Rican yeah. National Guard uh, members. And uh, so, you know, Puerto Rico's had a very, very bad couple Tough of year. years, <laughs> or yeah. at least a year. Yeah. yeah, that's really sad. So we'll uh, hopefully learn something about what happened there soon. Um, moving on to that Southwest 737. Oh, this is a different, different one. one. I'm different. sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Southwest Airlines, another 737, 700, uh, was going from Chicago midway to Newark. Um, and, uh, this says Newark, Illinois. I think that's Newark, um, that New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. yeah. With 81 passengers was en route at flight level 330, about 120 nautical miles west, northwest of Cleveland, Ohio. When the crew descended the aircraft to flight level 270 due to a cabin window, the outer pane of which had cracked without any cabin pressurization issue, the aircraft diverted to Cleveland for a safe landing about 35 minutes after leaving flight level 330. And um, one of the headlines of the articles that I read uh, said, that it was an emergency landing well no it clearly says here no emergency landing was declared it was just a precautionary m- maneuver or a uh, uh, decision made by the crew to uh bring it down and i don't blame them for doing that uh, you know you have a crack you know what's going on cracked cracked cabin window that you don't normally hear much about uh you hear about cracked windshields in the cockpit mm-hmm. but yeah not- but
2: how do you what's the mechanism for that there shouldn't be anything that's going to you know, without a you no. need, something to impact it or contact it or have a significant pressurization issue, I would think. I don't know.
3: I would think so well, too. Yeah, I would uh, say this is probably a flaw in the glass. In the glass. Um, yeah. That's what and, I think It's probably a flaw in the flight deck. It's usually a fault with the uh, one of the electrical membranes mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, often uh, causes, because uh, I was a heated reason. Yeah. Well, interestingly,
1: um, just a week ago, uh, another Boeing 737-700, registration Yankee Romeo Bravo Golf Golf, was uh, a Tarom, T-A-R-O-M, performing flight 421 from Bucharest to Barcelona, or Barthelona, uh with 105 people on board, was en route at flight level 360 when the crew decided to return to Bucharest due to a cracked window in the passenger cabin. So again, I did a search. I was just kind of curious thinking, I don't recall hearing much about these cracked windows. And I did a search on the Aviation Herald to see if there were any other uh, cracked cabin window events. And really, no, there was nothing except the recent two. It's,
2: it's like anything else. Everything seems to come in clusters, I think. Yeah. You know, something will happen and then another very similar incident happens and then nothing again for a very long time. Not just in aviation, it just seems like that's always the way things happen. Yeah. That's a very scientific theory uh, on my part, obviously.
4: Uh, I'm with Nick, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if there wasn't a bad run on windows and, and manufacture on, on the windows that there might be a problem out there. There might be. Because mm-hmm. because how often, you know, in the past, I mean, other than the Comet way back in the 50s, how often do you ever hear window problems in the passenger cabin? Almost never. So I think there's, a, there's probably a, a manufacturing defect going yeah. on here.
1: Well, again, we'll uh, we'll kind of be listening to see what happens here if there are going to be any more incidents and um, if there's going to be a an emergency AD to do inspections on cabin windows on seven thirty seven seven hundreds. I don't know. And finally, in the news folder, uh, a little bit of lighter news: um, Bombardier or Bombardier, as uh, some people like to say. Bombardier. Um, yeah, Bombardier. Pilot to Bombardier, Pilot to Bombardier, <laughs> um, C-Series could be renamed the Airbus A200. You'll remember last October, there was a, a big announcement, the future of the C-Series. It was announced that Bombardier would sell a majority stake in the C-Series program to Airbus. Under this arrangement, Airbus will own 50.01% of the C-Series project. Bombardier will own 31%. and Quebec. Let me try that again. Investissement. <laughs> How am I doing there?
2: Uh, I don't know. We need Josine to tell us. Yeah, Jo-ceane. Investissement.
1: Yeah, Investissement.
3: I'm not French. I can't Quebec, Quebec
1: will own 19. percent As part of Airbus's involvement in the project, the two companies hope for significant savings by leveraging Airbus's supply chain expertise and blah 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 blah. Anyway, uh, Bloomberg reports that Airbus intends to rebrand the C series. According to people familiar with the matter, A-200 is one of the names under consideration for the C-Series. Currently, there's the CS-100, CS-300, so those planes would be designated as the A-210 and A-230, which makes sense. Currently, Airbus uses A-3 blank blank for all of their planes as they've produced the A-300, 310, 320, 330, 340, 350, and 380. It makes sense that they'd go for a lower number, given that the plane is smaller. Not that the numbers have always been indicative of the size of the plane, though. It's noted. Anyway, what do you think? Is that a good idea or not?
3: Yeah, kind of makes sense.
4: It does. Sure. It's always good. It's not an Airbus. It's, yeah. Well, but it's that, just like the 7.7. Not, it's not a Boeing. I just I, I i i'm just gonna shut up. A 727 is not a Boeing. No,
1: 717. Oh, okay. <laughs> I said yeah. 727. It's an MD95. What? All well, these years you, I was flying a know. 727, and it wasn't a Boeing. No, if you, no.
2: If you spend the money <laughs> not what for I said the all. Accident, I know. You get to call it
1: whatever you want. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess they have majority share of the ownership yeah. of the C series. So it's ours it's
2: now. Like, we we've claimed it. We'll rebrand it ours. And yeah. No one will be any the wiser.
1: So. Hmm. I guess it could it could help its popularity. You uh, knowing that uh, you know they maybe giving the impression that it's called now an Airbus A two hundred and has the full confidence and backing of uh, that prestigious company located in uh, Europe. So you know that makes sense.
2: I think it simplifies things. Yeah,
1: at least. Although, what do you think? If you're a Canadian and uh, you have your heart is is for Bombardier, how do you feel about that? Send us Well, feedback. I, I mean, perhaps I, they should have called it
3: an AB-210. An AB? Airbus Bombardier.
1: There you go. Or a BA. I mean, two, no, that would be too confusing.
4: <laughs> if you take a really good look at the airplane, it's really a nice combination of both the Boeing product and the Airbus product. It's really... Uh, um, you know, it, it, it's a side control, side stick controller. However, with the Airbus, you don't have the, the ability to trim and may have feel in the stick. No, the, it much, does have trim. No, no. The Bombardier does. Oh, yeah. Okay. I thought you were saying yeah, it. No, 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 no. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is that the Airbus, well, the Airbus has
3: trim. It does. It's just that it?
4: it's not pilot. Um, pilot induced trim. It's it's Yeah. You push, it, and if that fails, you got a trim wheel.
3: Oh, there you go. All right. You got a big trim like wheel, a big 172. just like a Cessna. <laughs> we have to use it. Yeah, I don't know. You guys get That's an education. <laughs> okay, where's the buzzer? Uh, I am getting
4: education right now. As a matter of fact, I you were, getting okay, educated stop. right now, buddy? <laughs> Eleven hours yesterday studying. All right, I'm shutting up. Okay, we're moving
1: on now to the best part of the show, which is anything but what we've done so far.
6: Captain, incoming message.
1: Okay, as mentioned uh, a few times earlier in the show, we're going to start off the feedback with a bunch of great feedback that you all sent us regarding the Southwest 1380 flight. Uh, First of all, uh, in the uh, show notes here, we have the investigative update, an extract. And uh, they say the number 13 fan blade had separated at the root. The dovetail remained installed in the fan disc. I'm not going to go into all the other details about uh, the measurements and areas of disbonding and fatigue. But basically, they found evidence of fatigue fatigue on that particular br- blade, blah, blade. And moving down um, the remainder of the accident airplane's airframe exhibited significant impact damage to the leading edge of the left wing left side of the fuselage and left horizontal stabilizer a large gouge impact mark consistent in shape to a recovered portion of the fan cowl and latching mechanism was adjacent to the row 14 window uh, and that window was entirely missing Uh, no window airplane structure or engine material was found inside the cabin which i think is kind of Interesting, but I guess makes sense because if you're going to have a rapid decompression, everything is going to be flowing from the cabin outward and not inward into the cabin. Uh, During interviews, the flight attendants and the employees reported that they heard a loud sound and experienced vibration. The oxygen masks automatically deployed in the cabin. The flight attendants retrieved portable oxygen bottles and began moving through the cabin to calm passengers and assist them with their masks. As they moved toward the mid-cabin, they found the passenger in row 14 partially out of the window and attempted to pull her into the cabin. Two male passengers helped and were able to bring the passenger in. Uh, During interviews, the flight crew stated that the climb out from LaGuardia was normal, no indications of any problems. The first officer was the pilot flying and the captain was pilot monitoring, which made sense because that initial call that we played um, before the incident had the captain uh, on the radio uh conversing with the uh, center and uh let's see they reported experiencing a sudden change in cabin pressure aircraft yaw cockpit alarms and a gray puff of smoke they donned their oxygen masks and the first officer began to descent. flight data recorded data showed that the left engine parameters all dropped simultaneously vibration increased and within five seconds the cabin altitude alert activated The flight data recorder also indicated that the airplane rolled to the left about 40 degrees before the flight crew was able to counter the roll with control inputs. The flight crew reported that the airplane exhibited handling difficulties throughout the remainder of the flight. The captain took over flying duties, and the first officer began running emergency checklists. The captain requested a diversion from the air traffic controller. She first requested the nearest airport, but quickly decided on Philadelphia. The controller provided vectors to the airport with no delay. The flight crew reported initial communications of difficulties because of loud sounds, distraction, and wearing masks, but as the airplane descended, the communications improved. The captain initially was planning on a long final approach to make sure they completed all the checklists, but when they learned of the passenger injuries, uh, the captain decided to shorten the approach and expedite the landing. So that's, in a nutshell, the uh, significant data that I think would be worth talking about on the show uh, in that investigative update. So shall we move on to some of the feedback that we received?
2: Yeah, let's do that. We have a lot of it for this, right?
1: We do. Let's start off with uh, Colonel Jeff. He actually sent two pieces of audio feedback regarding the incident. Let's play this first one.
7: Hello, APG community. It's Colonel Jeff with a quick update on Southwest 1380 and the CFM 56. Just a real quick background on the CFM 56. It was initially developed by General Electric with the uh, French company as a engine for the YC-15, which it did fly on. However, that program disc- was discontinued. What saved it was uh, the U.S. Air Force and the French Air Force getting together and deciding to re-engine their KC-135s with that engine. It was soon picked up by United to re-engine their 30 Douglas DC-8s, and it was a, quite a rather exponential improvement on noise reduction as well as thrust and that was back in 1979 so the engine's been around for quite a while soon after that boeing uh decided to use it for the ng version of the 737 the, the first generation next generations the 300s and then airbus came along as usual behind the power curve driving to follow somebody else sorry nick <laughs> uh, for the a320 series it the latest version of the CFM56, the Dash 7, which was the engine in this incident, averages 18,000 hours time on wing between major overhauls, with some engines going well over 30,000 hours up to 50,000 hours between major overhauls. It has an exceptional reliability rate of almost 100%, averaging about one uh, departure delay for every 2,500 departures. So as you can see, it's a really good engine. and. Being an individual who flies it every time I go to work, I have found it to be a very reliable and uh, very easy to use engine. I've had no issues in my five years of flying with it uh, at all. In that case, and that's that being said, the engine in this case did uh, blow up. Uh, Basically, they say it's an uncontained engine failure. And from what I've read, the fan blade did not actually leave the engine core. It, the engine casing, the Kevlar shielding that every engine has did hold that in. What did penetrate the fuselage in this case and in the case in 2016 was the fragments of the cowling that were broken off the airplane when the debris caused by the damage from the turbine blade in the engine flying off the aircraft, tearing off the outside cowling of the jet of the engine. And that's what the difference uh, in this case. But again, it's a very safe engine. Uh, they're all over the world. Every 737NG out there has them. It's the only engine option on the 737, and it's—I think—it's about half the A300, 320 series of aircraft have the same engine, slightly different model, but uh, in shape. And that's about it. So that's pretty much all I have. Uh, I have some more opinions about how the emergency was handled and the press they've gotten for it, but I'll leave that for some other feedback. That's it for now. Thanks. I hope this filled the square. And uh I'll be talking to you all later about some other feedback. Bye
1: bye. It did fill the square, Jeff. Thank you. And it's always good to hear from somebody who actually has experience with that particular engine model. And uh
3: Yeah, I, I might add that I have flown with this engine as well and all three Engine failures I've had in the civil world were with that engine type, CFM56. Oh, so your experience was a little bit different than Jeff's. Yeah.
1: Okay. Was it the actual um, same um, series? It
3: wasn't the seven B, I would imagine. I doubt it. No, yeah. uh, it was on three forty. And to be fair, one of those was a bird strike, so it wasn't really uh, the engine's fault. But the the others were a uh, inlet guide vane actuator failure. And a secondary uh, gearbox uh, drive shaft failure. So uh, it didn't involve blades coming off, which was nice. Yeah. You know, interestingly,
1: you know, uh, the engine designations it can can be, I don't know, not confusing, but um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. But I flew the 727, which was a JT8D, Pratt & Whitney JT8D engine, and the uh, md 88s that Dana and I are flying now also use the JT-8D engine, but it's not a, it's not very similar at all, <laughs> Uh completely different, um, the way it operates and much more thrust in the later version of it. Uh, even I guess the original 737-200 had the uh, JT-8D engine. It did. Uh, Correct. Yeah. It did. So.
4: And, and it's a great engine. I mean, it's very reliable.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: It's been throughout the years, very, a very reliable engine. But it, it's not uh, very fuel-efficient, though. Because not very fuel-efficient, but yeah. very reliable. Not a very high Kind of like an old, good old Chevy engine. Yeah. Can't kill them. Exactly. May uh, not be the most, most fuel-efficient, but you can't kill them. That's right. All right, let's
1: continue then with some more feedback from Colonel Jeff.
7: Hello, APG community. It's Colonel Jeff. With some more feedback about the Southwest 1380, this one is more in regards to how the incident was handled and how it was publicized in the press. The female captain did a great job and the press has made her into an international hero with Congress even wanting wanting to get involved in doing some kind of act supporting her, declaring her and her crew a national hero or something to that regard. Let me just point out that in 2016, Almost exactly the same thing happened to another Southwest flight. It was the same engine, same type of engine, on the same side of the airplane, at roughly the same altitude, with a rapid depressurization, just like this one had, with an emergency landing. The only difference being that, on the one in 2016, no one died. No one was even injured. The same procedures were followed, the same emergency descent, the same checklist would have been run, and... That one hardly got any press at all. The difference is there was one fatality. And you thought this woman walked on water and didn't get her feet wet. And I have a lot of heartburn with that because just like in the Miracle on the Hudson, what was the co-pilot's name? Yes, just that, silence, nobody knows. And I'm not sure how Southwest does it, but procedures at my airline are such that whoever's flying the airplane when something like this happens continues to fly the airplane, but they also immediately take responsibility for the radios. The other individual gets the QRH out, the emergency procedures checklist out, and he starts going through the checklist. So in this case, you hear the captain speaking on the radio majority of the time. That's because the co-pilot is over there basically working his butt off going through several different checklists. He's got an emergency descent going. He's got an engine failure, fire separation checklist going. He's got an emergency engine, emergency landing checklist going. He's got a one engine landing checklist going. So he's got a lot of stuff to cover in not a lot of time. So it was definitely a crew effort. Uh, he should be recognized, if not at least as much as the captain is in this case. They did a wonderful job. My hat's off to them. God forbid I should ever find myself in that kind of situation. I've had enough scares of my own over the years. I don't need one like that. Another beef I have is an article, and I wish I could find this article again because I actually read it. And it was basically an article lamenting the fact that the airlines are having trouble recruiting military pilots because there aren't enough military pilots out there. Um, It used to be that a majority of the pilots did come from the military, this article was claiming that it's down to like 25%, which may be true now because the, airline, the, the military is offering huge bonuses trying to keep guys in because they have just as big a shortage as the airlines do, if not more so. And basically, this article was expounding the proficiency of the military pilot over and above his civilian counterpart. And I'm sorry, if I'd been a civilian reading the article, I'd have been really kind of insulted. I have flown with Hundreds of pilots over the past 20 years at American Airlines, and I'm sure Jeff has too, with his company, as well as Nick and Dana. And if you don't know a guy's background, you could not tell from his flying capabilities uh, what his background was. I've flown with civilian guys who were extremely good, extremely competent. I've flown with military guys who were awful, and vice versa. To me, the difference between a exceptional pilot... And an average pilot at the airlines is an attitude. It's an attitude of being professional. It's an attitude of being competent. It's an attitude of staying up to date on your systems, understanding and knowing your airplane. And that's the difference in pilots, not whether they came from the military or whether they came from civilian background. So I'll get off my soapbox now. Hope you're all enjoying the, whatever else is going on on this particular episode. Take care and God bless.
8: Hey Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, and Captain Dana. Christian Base here in Toronto. This is my first voice feedback. I was just listening to episode 320 in your discussion about Southwest Flight 1380 and the news coverage constantly referencing the fact that the captain was female, and most of you seem to feel that it was mostly unnecessary. I think you all have the benefit of being in pilots' lounges and seeing a lot more females with stripes on their arms than there used to be. However, I don't think it's Normalized yet for the general public, on the unfortunately rare occasions that I fly, the captain and first officer are still more often than not male. Now, perhaps some of the airlines in the U.S. become more gender balanced more quickly than here in Canada, but that's my layperson's observation. I know that as the father of a young teenage daughter, I regularly still feel the need to highlight occurrences of females in shall we say non-traditional roles, especially in STEM, which I'd say aviation falls into. Now perhaps those are my own unconscious biases at play, but at this early point in her life she now eyeing a career in engineering, and perhaps a little of my reinforcement has had an effect on her early decision. Later in the news segment, when you were discussing the F-22 Raptor that went for a belly rub on a runway, you unconsciously assumed that the aviator was male before correcting yourself. And that just reminded me that those unconscious biases die hard and maybe we do still need to explicitly normalize women in the cockpit. Finally, I'd also look at the hosts of APG and note that only 25% of you are female. Now that may be other factors at play such as very small sample size or maybe Dr. Steph is just a glutton for punishment for hanging out with the rest of you lot. Who knows? However, in my limited browsing of other aviation related webcasts, the only female hosts I've found happen to be flight attendants. But then again, maybe podcasting is just a male dominated area for other reasons. So those are my five Canadian cents, which since we don't have pennies anymore, have a great day and thanks for continuing to keep infecting us with APG syndrome. Blue skies and gentle zephyrs wherever you're headed.
1: Thank you, Christian. Um, a great. Uh Counterpoint, I guess, uh, or another perspective, I guess, is probably best.
2: Yeah, said. he's he's not incorrect though. The and actually, it's a very low percentage of um, professional airline pilots are female. It's around the five percent mark. Mm-hmm. And I was actually looking. I actually have a spreadsheet somewhere on my computer that lists. I think it's from last year. Of the major airlines in the U.S. and Canada and um, some places over in Europe, um, and they're all around the 5%. Some are slightly higher, slightly lower. Um, I wanted to say it was actually Air Canada or um, WestJet or someone in one of the airlines in Canada that had one of the highest percentages, but I could be wrong about that. I was trying to find it. I can't find it right now because I didn't prepare. The percentages
4: but are growing rapidly. They, they are
2: growing rapidly, and I think that's going to start changing very quickly, but... So as of last year, that's, that's what it was. So yes, he's not incorrect.
1: Yeah. I, I know what uh chart you're talking about and uh, it, it's uh, on average, I think uh, at Acme, it's 6% and United is one of the biggest uh, legacy carriers um, they're but they're only about 9% or something, you know, I, I don't, I don't
2: think anyone was as high as 9% from really. Okay. Yeah. From the stats I saw.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know we need to turn that around and uh, but as we've always said on this show anyway that uh, you know we we don't care uh, what color you are or what kind of stuff you have uh, in your pants. Uh, you know it's it's about you know doing the job you have the capability to do it, then do it for for goodness sakes, you know, uh, but we uh, definitely need to encourage our young people that uh, they understand that this is a an equal opportunity workspace and uh things you know were different a few years back and they're slowly changing uh, but they're changing in the right direction at least and they smell a whole lot better than you do too the parts in the pants or the people
4: no the the girls wearing the perfume oh yes yes they do you're right i guess not them being sexist at all it's yeah what about guys i smell guys that smell really good
3: yeah. Oh, no, if thank you. you. Guys they, who, that's uh, just not my well, style. <laughs> well, you can't say that, Dana. They're just, uh, you know, they're just pilots. They are pilots. So if you get a guy wearing perfume, pilots, right. <laughs> Pilots
4: wear perfume. That is very true. A guy could be wearing perfume. I just and, thought of
3: something.
1: And, and that would be nice. A potential for uh, a money-making enterprise. Let's come up with some kind of a pilot perfume.
3: Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm afraid I'm to know um, what that would actually would smell like, <laughs> so it's not. Okay. It smells a whole lot better <laughs> um, than
2: me
4: not taking a shower for three days. Oh, just, yeah.
2: just real quick, I did come across, I'm actually not sure where, it, I think this came from, International Society of Women Airline Pilots, so some statistics here. Jeff, you are correct, United has the highest percentage, it was 7.4%. Uh, lowest was Norwegian at 1%. Huh. That's interesting. A, a airline very similar to Acme, four and a half percent.
1: Really, I thought it was six. An
2: airline oh. very similar to Acme Red, three point two percent.
1: Ooh, boo.
2: <laughs> and <laughs> I was thinking say. of Air Canada; they're only at five point five percent for some reason.
3: I'm not responsible for recruitment. <laughs> thank the Lord. <laughs> I understand.
2: I'm just, I'm just, you know, inquiring minds will want to know. So that's those are 2018. Um, uh numbers. Yeah, pretty current and though. Over, and around the world, five point one eight percent of the world's professional yeah.
4: airline pilots are and female. increasing. That's a great I mean if we pull the numbers just from five years ago, I I won't, I'm only to bet that number would be a very it's large number. Something around five percent for a long Uh-oh. time. But has it? Yeah. Well disregard that last statement. <laughs> then disregard <laughs> that. I mean that's surprising to me. But yeah. I think
2: you're right. I think I think we are moving in the right direction. I think you see that so what we don't have here are the regional numbers. And I would venture to say that if you fly a lot with regional carriers, you're going to see a lot more female pilots because more and more female pilots are going through or more and more females are going through flight training, becoming pilots, getting their foot in the door, um, you know, especially in the uh, civilian world and moving up through the ranks there. So I think those numbers are going to be changing.
1: And just based on anecdotal evidence, which is not scientific in the least, uh, I'm hearing a lot more female, at least what sounds like female voices on the radio. So again, I don't want to offend anybody, you know, maybe that's just a person that doesn't have a lot of testosterone could be a guy,
4: whatever. So
1: I'm okay with that. What's, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that.
4: Nobody knows the nose goes and us closed. Okay. keep digging. Um, just keep digging. <laughs>
2: You see how I, I stopped talking a long time ago, Nick?
4: <laughs> <laughs> HR is on the, is on the case now.
1: Yep. <laughs> no, it, what's nice about that is you give me a nice big pause in the uh, audio file where I can find that offending statement. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
4: yeah, a, that long not offensive at all.
1: <laughs> I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Some more feedback regarding uh, Southwest 1380. Uh, Ivan uh, writes, he says, this is for Steph. Question. The lady suing Southwest for post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Isn't it a wee bit early to make that diagnosis according to the DSM, which I'm sure that Steph will be able to tell us what DSM means? Des Moines? It
2: is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. They're on their fifth edition. So it's the DSM-5, Oh, I believe. I'm not a psychiatrist, so if I got that wrong, I'm sorry. But I think that's correct because it was a dsm 4 when I was in school and I think they've come out with the Anyway, um, so, yeah, I had to do a little research on this because I don't make this diagnosis ever in my patients, fortunately. Um, but there are see, eight criteria um, for the diagnosis of this particular illness. Um, each of the criteria uh, have several different bullet points under them. And for some, it's one required for some, it's two required, but you get to criteria F and it says required symptoms last for more than one month. So what, when did this happen again? Exactly. I forget the, well, date. the symptoms
1: last for more than one. Oh, I see what you're saying. It, it was less than a month. It's ago. been
2: less than a month. So this person does not yet meet the diagnostic criteria for
1: PTSD. So Ivan, you are correct. You are correct. Yes. Ding. Ding. Yeah, where's the bell? Here, I should have had that ready. Steph, you should have keyed me on that. I'm sorry. Okay.
3: Well, we're relying on Ivan for our accuracy stats now. <laughs> well, we got to rely on somebody.
2: Obviously, we can't do it. Hey, I've had a lot of statistics in this particular feedback session. Yeah, year, so yeah.
1: very um, good. I'm doing she doing my best.
2: Doing right. my <laughs> part.
4: Look, a girl doing math. Wow
2: wow yeah.
4: uh, now 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 that is very sexist i know
2: i'll i'll i'll, I'll stop immediately and go back to the kitchen
4: <laughs> please make some no no, no for that's us. my job oh, that's i true. should be barefoot naked in the kitchen uh, <laughs> Oh, nice i'm not sure about the barefoot? naked part oh, no, no, think so we can
3: do without but, the naked wait where's
4: thank julie you. when i need her i don't know <laughs> i need some defense here
1: all right um hey paul in uh, New Jersey, uh, Newark, Hi, Liberty. Uh, hey, Paul, um, sent us some audio feedback. Uh, he, you know, you'll remember that he works on, or he used to work on jet engines, and he has something to say about these inspections.
9: Hello to the APG crew. Hope all is well. I want to start by saying that it was a great pleasure to finally meet Captain Jeff in person in Newark a few days ago. Um, I'm now two out of four on cast members uh, having met Captain Nick a a few weeks ago uh, in Newark as well. So uh, all I got left to do is go down to Charlotte and look for a a blue Jeep with no doors, Uh, go to Atlanta and look for a man riding a Harley, uh, holding some, uh, some barbecue, some barbecue ribs and uh, I'll be all set. I would have met the, the whole entire panel. The, uh, the reason that I'm, I'm sending this feedback is in regard of the Southwest Flight 1380 incident. I came across an article that stated that Southwest protested an airworthiness directive uh, that the engine manufacturers, uh, CFM, suggested to the FAA due to the uh, estimated ground time that would, affect, that would have affected the, uh, the Southwest fleet. Now before jumping to any conclusions, um, it's not to say that this particular inspection would have found the defective fan blade that is said to have failed on flight 1380. But what I can say is that I'm actually quite familiar with this this inspection. Having worked in the uh, power plant shop in Newark for my airline, uh, I became quite familiar with the CFM56. Maybe more so than any other engine in uh, my airline's fleet. And this particular inspection might just be the most common and frequent task that I that I did. It was almost guaranteed that there was one of these inspections scheduled every night. Uh, as far as the inspection is concerned, the, uh, the CFM56 is designed with a wide cord fan blade and a curved slot disc hub. Uh, the first step um, on this inspection is to remove all 24 fan blades, uh, the associated hardware. And um, on, the, uh, on the actual fan blade, uh, the, the fan blade root uh, has a, a copper nickel alloy coating on the, uh, on the dovetail pressure face. And any missing or worn coating would it cause excessive wear on the fan blade or the hub or both and uh, it could cause excessive vibration. Um, Any blades that were found uh, to be out of limits would be replaced. And actually our our power plant department found that it was better and safer option to replace an entire set than just to replace individual blades because then um, to replace an individual blade, you would have to replace a blade that's completely opposite from it Uh, 180 degrees opposite for balancing purposes. So they found that it's just better and safer to uh, replace the entire set. Um, At at this point in the inspection, since the blades were off, uh, we would clean, inspect, and measure the titanium slots in the engine hub to ensure that there was no excessive wear on the actual hub as well. Uh, If everything checked out good, we would lubricate the new blades or uh, if the existing blades uh, proved to be within limits, we would just uh, reinstall the, 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 the existing blades. Uh, but if if not, we would just replace the, uh, the entire blades, uh, lubricate them, lubricate the hub and all the associated hardware, put everything back together. We would then taxi the aircraft to the run-up area where we would run up the engine At uh, at all power settings to ensure that there was no fan vibration Now if there was fan vibration, we would interrogate the uh, the airborne vibration unit Which is uh, it's a black box on the electronics bay and it would give you a solution um, Which consisted of installing or removing? Weighted screws that are installed on the on the uh, spinner on the engine spinner the the whole the whole inspection would last pretty much an entire eight to ten-hour shift, uh, we would do this inspection every 1,500 cycles for each engine. And we currently have, in my airline, we currently have, uh, I think it's 330 737s, so that's 660 engines. So as on any, you know, as any given inspection, I'm sorry, as any engine is inspected. Uh, it's quite expected that another engine is due uh, as I mentioned earlier in an earlier feedback I no longer work in the power plant shop uh, I I now work line maintenance but I spoke to some of my uh, co-workers who stated that our engineering department has issued a, a revised inspection that further scrutinizes this this uh, particular um, this particular inspection uh, it's now common to see our hangar filled with 737s as our technical department wants to ensure that you know a repeat of the southwest event will never happen again Uh, i wanted to send this feedback last week but i wanted to wait for things to settle down Uh, but it's starting to look like from all the reports that i read uh, in fact it was a blade that detached itself from the hub and and caused a catastrophic uh, engine failure i figured that i'd share this little tidbit of information to uh give all you know, a better understanding of the workings of the CFM 56 and all that's involved um, on the technical operations side of, of the airline. Uh, that's all I have for now. Hope to see you all at the next APG uh, meet and uh, safe travels to everyone. Bye-bye.
1: We hope to see you as well, Paul. Thank you for that uh, very detailed feedback regarding engine inspections and what you look for when you do and how long it t- Wow, that's amazing. What do you say, like a typical eight-hour shift would be taken up completely with uh, the one of those inspections? Yep. And ba- if I heard him correctly, uh, over 600 engines in the fleet, and uh, I guess they wouldn't have to re- inspect each one of them every year. I'm not sure uh, how many cycles he said, but uh, that's that's pretty much one of those, at least one or two of those engines in the shop at all times getting those inspections. Sounds like it. Yeah. All right. Looks like uh, Dana had to leave us. Uh, so, uh, Dana, thanks for joining us for as long as you could. And good luck with your training tomorrow. We all know, of course, that you'll do just fine. woo Okay. Um, moving on with the feedback extravaganza for Southwest 1380. Um, Private Pilot Rich wrote in interesting article on the declining number of military pilots and commercial airlines. It says that Acme's sister airline Delta went from veterans making up 98% of new hires 20 years ago to less than half today. Have you noticed this at Acme? How about Acme red captain Nick? And again, that's private pilot. Rich we will put a link to that article from the, from WAPO, the Washington post in the show notes. And yeah, absolutely. Um, Acme, very similar to Delta, uh, hired mostly military pilots um, around my time frame and probably for the next 10 years thereafter. And uh, that has necessarily decreased because the number of military pilots emerging from the military services has really decreased quite significantly over the years. And uh, But I think Captain Jeff did a really good job. The other, the good looking captain, Jeff did a good job of uh, explaining that it really doesn't make that much of a difference as far as skills and uh, you know, your, your experience, et cetera. And, and I've said that many, many times on the show. And you've heard me say that, that uh, just because you were in the military, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a better pilot than somebody with a civilian background but there are some reasons that the airlines do kind of look for uh, military pilots because first of all um, and I'm sure that this is true for Captain Nick that when you're in the military your number one job is not being a pilot your number one job is being an officer and that kind of makes for a a person with certain characteristics leadership styles etc and being a skilled aviator as well, because um, those of us who have been through military training, flight training, know that if you're not that great of a pilot to begin with, you get weeded out pretty quickly. So um, you know, it's it's something that I understand that the airlines, many of the major airlines, at least here in the U.S., were looking for in recruits for uh, for pilots. Uh, but again, as Colonel Jeff has said, and and I've said many times, it doesn't guarantee that just because you're in the military, you're going to be any better than somebody that has a background that was not military. Would you agree, Captain Nick?
3: Yeah, I think there's um, quite a difference initially. If you bring a a relatively new pilot from Civvy Street in and a military pilot in, because of the intensity and level of training military guys get... I think, generally speaking, they would have the edge because there are not a lot of um, uh, restrictions on the level of training. In fact, you know, it, I, I did four and a half years of solid training before, before I actually started doing a, an operational job in the Royal Air Force. Uh, that's an awful lot of effort. And I then subsequently did another two, six months of solid training to become first a flying instructor and then a weapons instructor. All that time is, you know, just uh, something that you don't get in the civil world. It's just not available to you. Having said that, I think the uh, that initial, um, perhaps, uh, advantage is very soon even out because it's such a different job in the civil world. Uh, the amount of uh, time you spend in there you very quickly realize that there's a there's so many different things to think of uh, in civil flying that you uh, that your military training just doesn't prepare you for it doesn't adequately um, you know uh, give you experience of um, means that, after a, a relatively short period, you're back on an even keel again. So I I don't think there's uh, an enormous difference. Once you've done five or 10 years in an airline, I think then it just comes down to what kind of a person you are and how good a pair of hands you've got, not where you started your flying training. I mean, uh, my I've spent many more years now in the civil world than I did in the military world. I had 19 years in one, and I've now... Uh, coming up to 24 years in the other. So, um, you know, it's it's a different start in life, but I think ultimately you end up the pilot you would have been anyway, regardless of how you initially got your training and experience. I wholeheartedly agree. And The only thing I, I could
1: add is that one of the advantages of getting a military pilot uh, flight, getting military flight training is that you are exposed to certain types of flying that you'll never, ever get the chance to see unless you purposely as a civilian pilot go and take one of the courses from some of these companies out here that will take you and show you aerobatics and unusual attitudes and extreme unusual attitude situations and how to recover from that. Um, and that's something that we as military pilots, you know, get automatically as our training, which I think is priceless training. And it's not, you know, the fault of somebody who didn't have the opportunity to train in the military. It's just that I think it it's a, an important aspect of those of us who, who have. Yep. Yeah, I agree. All right. Um, let's see. Oh, Nick, Knack Jack, send us some audio, feed. a lot of audio feedback that we got, uh, which is great. We love it.
6: Hey, APG crew. It's Nick, Knack again. I was wondering about the Southwest incident. Um, listening to the ATC tapes, they didn't actually, from what I heard, declare an emergency. Obviously, if you say you have a fire in an engine and you've lost an engine, you're single engine. Uh, I think the emergency would be implied, but I don't remember them actually declaring an emergency. And I was wondering if that's an issue at all, or would that come into play in the NTSB investigation? Uh, Just wanted to get your input on that. Um, And I had something else, but it slipped my mind. So... Um, I'm going to keep simming because that's what I do. Um, and people can find me, N-I-C-N-A-C-J-K.net, FS right along in iTunes. And, uh, till next time, keep the blue side up. Bye.
1: Thank you, Knickknack. Uh, he also sent another piece of audio feedback, which we'll play on a future episode. But I wanted to play this one because it specifically addresses, you know, the thing that's the hot topic now, which of course is the Southwest incident. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read this next one because it kind of is very similar to Knickknack Jack's um, question regarding emergencies and uh, who handles the airplane and works emergency procedures. Uh, this is from. Ian Ngati. uh always a pleasure to hear your voices each week. My question is re- in response to the con- conversation about what happened on Southwest Flight 1380. Almost all the time I hear any of the APG crew tell a story about a particular, particular flight, they are involved in it. It's always noted that one pilot is flying the aircraft while the other communicates with ATC and takes care of the non-flying duties captain or first officer, depending on whose leg it is. Hearing about major airline incidents, it's always it always seems to me that the captain takes control of the plane when the emergency occurs and is also communicating on the radios. In the case of Southwest 1380, I got the impression that the captain was flying and she was also the main pilot heard on the radio doing the communicating. In the case of U.S. Airways Flight 1549, the Sully-Jeff Skiles flight, Sully took over the controls and also continued to communicate with ATC. Maybe Jeff Skiles could have given better information than Sully could because he was no longer in control of the aircraft? What is the official procedure if there is one? I also remember reading about United Flight 232, the Sioux City accident in 1989, where Captain Al Haynes was flying the DC-10 and also continued communicating with ATC and the cabin and the cabin, even though there were three other pilots on the flight deck. I guess maybe in those moments, it makes the most sense for one person to communicate who is also co- in control? Question mark. Again, that's Ian from New Jersey. Great questions, both uh, from Ian and Nack Jack. Um,
2: Colonel Jeff kind of answered this a little bit, he did. at least specific to his airline. But, um, you know, he was saying whoever's flying the aircraft. So I think he said at his airline, it's whoever was flying the aircraft continues flying the aircraft. But also does the communications because the other pilot is the one doing the quick reference handbook, the all the checklists and and going through and trying to work all of that. And that's a very busy job to have as well. So,
1: And that's the protocol at ACME as well. And I always brief that, especially when we're talking about uh, an, an emergency situation that occurs on takeoff. Uh, that, uh, if we continue a takeoff, whoever's flying the airplane, continue to fly the airplane and communicate outside the other person start working the abnormal procedure and communicate inside. Then I also add, however, if it's, if I think that it's best that the first officer fly the airplane and I work the emergency procedure, which is kind of. The way my company looks at the best or the what what's the, uh, the favorable,
0: the
2: favorable
1: or best practice or whatever, uh, where the uh, where the where the first officer flies and communicates outside and the and the captain handles the emergency procedure and communicates with the cabin crew and the company and everybody else. Um, and uh, so I basically say that once the airplane is under control, you know we're we're away from the ground and and uh, the everything is stabilized, then we'll make uh, a, a change in 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 roles, but not until then. Of course, you don't want to be doing, you know, switching who is controlling the airplane uh, when you're in a critical situation, um, and I think that it really. Depends on the situation, and you know, even though I brief this over and over and over again, I really don't know for sure exactly what I'm going to do when I'm in a situation like this. If I feel like the first officer is not flying the airplane, you know, sufficiently or whatever, or I think I can do a better job of it, I'll take over the aircraft. But uh, in in general, if it's the first officer's leg, I'll let. That person continue to fly the airplane and I'll work the abnormal procedure and do all the other ancillary tasks. Uh, Captain Nick, what's uh, the policy with uh, ACME
3: Red? We have uh, a similar um, change in roles in that uh, whoever is flying the aircraft takes the radio. Because uh, the other guys doing the drills, and the last thing you need when you're doing such a vital set of drills is to have a checklist interrupted by you having to make a radio call. You come back to the checklist and then find you've missed the vital action that is going to create a safe situation. So, yeah, the pilot flying takes the radio. Um As to whether the captain flies it or the first officer flies it, we would normally leave the handling pilot in control, Uh, but I think if there's any situation where the captain is in doubt, in other words, it's going to be a really complicated and difficult landing handling-wise, then I would normally expect the captain to say, look, I'm not doubting your ability, but... Uh, you know, I'm going to fly the airplane, um, which I think is a fair thing to do. Uh, Now, the one thing I love about Airbus is, uh, generally speaking, the automatics are going to be available to you in almost all emergency situations. So if you are the captain hand-flying the aircraft and using the radio, then, generally speaking, you'll revert to the automatics to relieve yourself of that instant load so that you can monitor what's going on the one thing you can't do when you're doing those complicated ECAM drills or checklist drills is you tend to lose track of where the airplane is in the sky what it's doing how high it is because you're really monitoring systems and staring at screens now instead of looking out the window and thinking about how much energy you've got where you are in the pattern etc cetera, etc cetera. so i I think there are situations when, exactly as you said, Jeff, when your instinct is, I think I need to worry about getting the airplane on the ground, in which case I need to be flying it so I can be heads out and thinking about my position in the pattern and what the priorities are. Or you might say, right, we're at a, we've got hundreds of miles to go before we can land the aircraft. Let Let him fly the airplane. I'll handle the. The drills make sure they're all done properly and think about uh, sit back then and think about what options we've got without me having to worry about the physical aspect of flying the airplane exactly
1: I, and the thing that we did not address um was Nack Nick jack's great question about hey i don't i didn't recall hearing mayday 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 or even we're declaring an emergency um but I think that uh, Nick Nack Jack's uh, feeling about this is that air traffic control knew immediately based on the communication that they have lost an engine and they have a rapid decompression uh, or rapid, you know, pressurization issue or that uh, it's it's an emergency situation. It's pretty uh, severe. And so technically an emergency was never declared, but I think it was implied.
3: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't think there's any doubt that they that was exactly the situation. Uh, and I think the great thing about saying mayday, 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 or we have an emergency is it informs the world that you are now the priority number one for the great controller and for everyone else to assist or shut up as is necessary. And I think she was getting the service she wanted without having to go through that formality.
1: I agree. But I think you're right. Uh, that if she had said mayday, 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 it could be because initially, if you'll remember, uh, the initial communication with the center controller was, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, did you just say that you, you know, lost an engine and you're, you're descending? Right, I, think, I think it was yeah, are you dis-
2: 1380, single engine, something like that. Yeah. You know?
1: And he said, you're descending. Like, yeah. what? Yeah. Why, why are you descending? Uh, yeah. So I, I think, yeah, in this case. I have to say that uh, that may have been an appropriate situation for a mayday, mayday, mayday
3: call. Yeah, I think in the simulator, I think we always, we without fail, when you got a problem, you shout either a pan or a mayday as appropriate. Um, I think perhaps in the air, you know, she's been very cool. Perhaps, you know, she, so cool that she actually omitted <laughs> the important bit of yeah. getting those few words out. Yeah,
2: it's one of those things you look back and you go, "Oh, I didn't actually say that." Yeah, you know, perhaps in her mind she did. Mm-hmm. You know, you yeah. think it and then just never actually say it. But yeah, that's where training and simulations come into play, I suppose.
1: And you know, as we mentioned many times uh, here on this show, um, the the use of even in the simulator of Mayday, Mayday, Mayday or Pan Pan, at least in the U.S., is very uncommon. Mm-hmm. So, and rare, I'd say.
3: It's interesting. I noted when um, I did that last plane tale uh, about the LL aircraft uh, in Amsterdam, the call was Mayday, Mayday, we have an emergency. So they covered Uh, both bases. Exactly. And I wonder if that was part of LL's training so that whatever country they were in the world, the controller would understand one set or other set of emergency declarations, you know. Right. Which I think is actually a good good way around the problem of some countries don't necessarily uh, use the ICAO standard. Yeah, I think you're right. I, think, that it, might I think
2: here, if you say Mayday, Mayday, Mayday or pan, pan, pan controllers and everyone else in the sky is going to know what you're talking about.
3: Mayday, I'm pretty sure they would. Um, but we actually have um, we've got several cases on our airline guys who've declared a pan. And, and, the, we don't, and we don't know what it was. Yeah. What? What, has, what are you trying are to tell are me?
0: Are you declaring an emergency? What is this?
3: <laughs> that's, Man, exactly, you speak of? that's exactly what happens, am Well, you know, and the reason that... that.
2: I'll say you get that question a lot. Um, well, or you hear it frequently where someone will call up and say, I have this, that, or the other problem. And then the next question is, are you declaring an emergency? Because they want to know no. specifically from the pilot, you know, was that your intention? Mm-hmm. Um Again, I guess "pan" isn't common enough to make that distinction.
1: Interestingly, um, in the military, it was either an emergency or a precautionary, which equate to "mayday, mayday, mayday" and "pan pan." Sure. Um, and but in the civilian world here in the U.S., as far as I'm concerned, it's either I'm declaring an emergency or you're not. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. It's uh, like that. That second step uh, is kind of they're not not covered at all. So, I can understand the uh confusion here in the US if you say pan pan. They're going to go, "What, Peter?" No, oh, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. I get I get the sense they'd probably treat it more as an actual emergency.
1: Yeah. I think so. All right, and finally Anthony uh says, "I'm curious about your thoughts regarding the inspection of these engines on your pre-flights. What are you looking for when doing their walk, walk around?" Is it only an examination of the blades? What else is examined? So, Anthony, um, well, I guess it depends on the airplane and your ability to actually do much of an inspection of an engine based on where that engine is hanging on the airplane. On my airplane, you know, from the view of the engines, they're up kind of high on the tail. Um, I can only see a limited amount of the Uh, the fan blades uh, on the front of the engine and the intake and uh, unless I walk way far behind the airplane uh, I don't really see much of the exhaust of the engine either so it's very the main thing that we're looking for at least on the airplane that I fly when you're doing a walk around is is not so much the condition of the fan blades uh, but more Uh, Is is there oil leaking out of this thing or other fluids that are not supposed to be leaking out of the uh, engine? And and making sure, of course, that there actually is an engine there on the airplane, which is obvious. But um, uh, what about you, Nick, when you're doing a walk around um, looking at those engines hanging on the wing?
3: Yeah, we, of course, get a pretty good view. And, uh, you know, you, you get so used to looking at a good serviceable engine. I would hope that if uh, something was missing, wrong, it would catch your eye. But generally speaking, you're looking for evidence, perhaps of a bird strike on the previous flight. You're looking for evidence of blade rubbing, uh, nicks, dents, whatever, on blades, etc. cetera. Um, I remember one of our captains on the 7.4s, In the old days, uh, doing a difficult walk around in foul weather at night spotted some quite severe damage to the fan blades. Uh, And um, of course, the engineers already done all their inspections. If he hadn't have uh, been sharp eyed, uh, they might well have had an engine failure on the next flight. So that was, you know, that's really what you're doing. You're, You're looking for unusual evidence of Oil uh, underneath, or any fluid underneath the engine, that indicates perhaps uh, you're getting an excessive amount through the drains. Uh, that's the only place you should get fluid out of out of the engine drains. If it's leaking from somewhere else, then there's probably a problem. And I, I just have a good old look around any stains and discoloring, perhaps down the back end, that might indicate that uh, the the flame isn't coming out of the back of the engine evenly. Uh, and I uh, just make a note. Uh, and um, I let the engineers know and ask them to go back and reinspect because ultimately I'm just making a general: do I think this place is this aircraft is fit to fly? Um, and he is the expert that's going to tell me ultimately whether it is or not. So that that's all I do really on a walkaround. Yeah, we're looking for the big picture basically. Yeah, um, and and because after all, in their military days, I used to check that every panel was buttoned and everything was tied away and sorted. But of course um when I do my walk around on airline all the doors are open, there's panels open. because <laughs> people are still working on it. Yep. So, you know, I couldn't possibly do a work or walk around when it's all buttoned up. That's the time I'm about ready to push.
1: There's a lot of trust involved in airline Absolutely, flying. Absolutely. Yeah. Um and you know, as far as this incident with the you know CFM 567 fifty six seven B engine, you know, there's no way that any pilot would have seen this fatigue um crack or i don't even think there was a crack it was just a something that you you, unless you had a borescope or a what are the
2: i'm sure you can't see that with the naked eye there's no way
1: yeah a good question though good question all right finally we're moving on to something other than southwest 1380 uh the second item in our feedback folder thomas uh, he, and he sent this in a couple months ago. Sorry, Thomas, it's taken us so long. But I thought it was worth mentioning because this looks like a pretty hairy situation. It's a military situation or a military incident. A two-seater EA-18G, which is a, a, what they call a growler. Um, it's a, a low out. Well, how do, you, how do you describe that airplane? It's kind of a, like the same kind of airplane as the intruder. It's a... Uh f- yeah,
3: it's an electronic warfare aircraft yeah. uh built around the super
1: um Hornet. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I think it is. Oh, yeah. okay. I was thinking it was something else. Okay. Two seater EA eighteen. That makes more sense. Thank you. I was thinking of a of a different airplane. Um anyway, they were cruising at twenty five thousand feet on the 29th of January, about sixty miles south of Seattle on a flight from Washington State's Naval Air Station Whidbey Island. To Naval Weapons Station China Lake, the crew received a warning that the system that controls a cockpit air temperature and cabin pressure, known as the Environmental Control System, or we'll refer to as ECS later in this article, was icing. By the time the flight was over, an elite air crew with air test and evaluation squadron 9 was being rushed for medical treatment. And yet another failure of the Growler's Environmental Control System one not seen in any of the previous physiological episodes linked to the ECS was raising new concerns in the Navy's oh, Sisyphean fight to stop physiological episodes from putting pilots at risk in the sky. I wish I had read this paragraph.
3: You did very well, I thought. Wow.
1: Hardly
2: yes. a pause. <laughs> not not I saw a
1: Sisyphean. And I went, oh my uh-huh. goodness. Here we go. Um, the temperature inside the cockpit suddenly plunged to temperatures reaching minus 30 degrees. Yikes, that's cold. And a mist pumped into the cockpit, covering the instruments and windows in a layer of ice, rendering the pilots almost completely blind, according to several sources familiar with the incident and an internal report obtained by Defense News. The fog inside the aircraft iced over the instrument panel, forcing the pilot and electronic warfare officer to use a Garmin watch to keep track of their heading and altitude, while air controllers began relaying instructions to the crew. The pilot and electronic weapons officer Ewo were forced to use the emergency oxygen supply which was completely depleted by the end of the flight a heroic effort by the two-person crew and the ground-based controllers managed to guide the aircraft back to Woodby Island but both pilot and Ewo suffered serious injuries due to frostbite the air crew suffered from severe blistering and burns on hands according to the navy internal report uh, the air crew was treated upon landing one of the aircrew is already back in flight status. The other is not yet back in flight status, but is expected to make a complete recovery. Uh, anyway, so the article goes on, which we'll include a link to in the show notes about um, electron, or uh, environmental control system failures and, uh, yep, here we go, legacy Hornets. Okay, I didn't catch that before when I was looking at the uh, article, Nick, but thank you for Making that point that these right. are part of the uh, F 18 series of
3: airplanes. Yeah, I was reading some of the other problems they've had. They, this overpressurization sounded. Oh my gosh.
1: <laughs> tell, well, tell us
3: about yeah. that, Nick.
1: What does it say yeah, about well,
3: that? It says here two years ago, a pilot and EWO were horrifically injured when their cockpit overpressurized and exploded, shattering the plexigrass glass canopy sending shards in all directions well thank god it did because if the pressure got that great i i expect they were in severe pain on the inside mm-hmm. oh man so yeah uh so it sounds like they're i mean uh, i i know that military aircraft are built with m- many uh, much fewer um safeguards uh because generally speaking you can manually override things that go wrong, uh, whereas uh, you don't need that level of safety on a uh, military aircraft you do on a civilian aircraft. But uh, this sounds way over the top, how uh, their corporate pressurization system can go so haywire as to injure them that madly. I'm I'm just a bit worried. And with There's no alone.
2: way to fix it when they notice it's hacked. You, you know they yeah. knew. It wasn't like it just is like yeah, the uh, proverbial frog in a pot of water that you slowly start to boil.
3: Oh um, yes. No. I've heard about that. Is it true? Well, I've never tried I have it. No idea. <laughs> I don't know. Steph probably knows. I bet Steph has done it. Down. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they get those frogs to dissect for practice. <laughs>
1: That's interesting. Uh, Steph wanted me to be, uh, go into her hot tub and she kept raising the temperature.
2: I mean, I wasn't going to go. It was just, I know. You know, she I said, no, no, it. thank you. You I go ahead.
1: <laughs> uh, let's see. So, uh,
3: did you ever have or hear about any of these kind of issues in the, um, uh, no, the, the classic seemed to be um, a well sorted airplane by the okay. time the Australians got it, and uh, I mean the only thing that we ever uh, whinged about was the oxygen system. Um, there were very few checks and balances in the oxygen system to ensure you were getting oxygen flow, um, and it was uh, it was a problem that f- I. I don't know if it was exactly the problem, but uh, one of the, the squadron commanders uh, died from hypoxia mm. uh, because he wasn't getting oxygen hadn't realized. Uh, and hadn't realised. And you know that that sort of thing is is not good. You need, you need if you if you're not getting sufficient oxygen flow, you really do need to have a warning system because uh, as your senses become uh, blurred by hypoxia, uh, you're much less likely to spot it than you would if you had a warning blaring at you yeah
1: okay well thank you for that uh, feedback thomas i believe he's in asheville which is a beautiful place in north carolina indeed and uh let's see moving on here back in the u.s back in the u.s back, back of the dprk <laughs> Um, back in the DPRK is a grand aviation tour this year, later this year, from the 16th through the 20th of October, 2018. Now this was sent to me from Ben and normally I don't do these kind of things, but I'm thinking to myself, the people listening to the show are av geeks. And I know that some of you out here, when you hear about this might be interested. Now, don't worry, I'm not getting any kind of kickback from this at all. So I just thought this might be something Worth talking about on the show. And in case you're interested in flying on an Illusion IL 18, IL 62, IL 76, a Tupolev TU 134, TU 154, TU 204, an Antonov AN-24, AN-148, AN 24, AN 148, an MIL 17, and Microlites. I'm not sure what a Microlite is. Anyway, um, this company that Ben is affiliated with. Uh we are delighted to be offering aviation enthusiasts a very special tour of the Democratic Public uh, uh Democratic uh what's the P stand for again? People's huh? people okay, Democ The Democratic Peoples. No, that's right. Democratic that right? People's Republic of Korea. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Learning from our six years of experience, we have refined the itinerary to create a time-efficient package that maximizes flying opportunities, condensed into only four nights with an optional three-night sightseeing extension. It features flights on the entire Air Koryo fleet of aircraft, nine types in total, several of which can now only be flown commercially in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. That's North Korea for those of you wondering. Combining a mix of point-to-point flying, circular joy rides and low-level uh, panoramic city sightseeing, this really is a tour not to be missed for classic aviation enthusiasts, not least due to the rarity of the aircraft types involved. One never quite knows when they will cease flying in the future. Uh, so anyway, information about this will be in the show notes and you know, I'm looking at the prices here and they don't look really that extravagant to me. I no, think, uh, not for all that flying. No, I mean, if you're a hardcore av geek and you've always wanted to fly some of these, you know, Soviet Union era jets uh, or aircraft, I think that this might be something right up your alley. So uh, check out all the information. And I and I am correct, aren't I? That uh, the DPRK is North Korea. Correct. Yeah. Okay.
3: I just love the, the fact that under optional extras is included a complete set of safety cards for the <laughs> entire uh, Corio. fleet. Well, if you so speak you Korean, you'll be okay. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> you don't get to see the safety cards unless you unless you play for the optional extra.
1: Yeah. Just just an cases? extra
2: 50 euro. It's fine. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's worth it. Go ahead and spend the extra 50 euro in you'll a, get a in, souvenir.
2: And a timetable? And a notebook yeah. and
1: some posters. And I hear yeah, that uh, Lane says that party. Dennis Rodman will be on the uh, tour. So, <laughs> 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 bam, <laughs> nice. Okay, so I hope you didn't mind me. Um, and again, the the real reason for me wanting to talk about that feedback was that I could play that back in the USSR. Okay, uh, Chris writes uh employment contract. Hi there. Been listening to your show for a couple of weeks now and really enjoying the folks you get around the table to discuss aviation news and their personal experiences. I'm interested in understanding whether from your perspective there are any emerging trends in aviation in how the cabin and flight crew are employed. From my research, we are seeing slight increases across low-cost and network carriers in their employment of staff on fixed-term contracts and part-time contracts but also increases in pilots who are self-employed i wonder if from your perspective or your guests whether they have any particular insights into this as well i'm working on a research paper as part of an aviation study so that's from chris and so we're we're happy to help you out chris i think i, I don't know much about these fixed term or part-time contracts uh, or self-employed contracts in fact when I heard that some of the carriers over there, like, uh, was it, is it uh, EasyJet and Ryan, where this is something that's been going on for a while, I, I'm surprised that that even existed. Um, because, you know, I'm in this world here in the U.S. where these things really uh, don't exist, or if they do, I'm not very aware of it. But uh, I have a feeling, and Steph and, and Nick will be able to, uh, you know, state what they think about this. Uh, I have a feeling that even in parts of the world where these things are pervasive or are, are in uh, use are going to, are starting to be trended out or they're, they're, they're starting to, you know, get rid of these kind of contracts. But what do you, what do you think guys?
3: Well, I, sorry, Steph, I'm going to, but no, go you carry on.
2: <laughs> I actually had the same, uh, moment there myself, um, you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about it. I can tell you a whole lot more about uh, independent contractors from a medical perspective, which does happen in some cases. Um, there's pros and cons to it. Um, I don't know at all from the airline uh, employment side of things. Um, but generally, um, you know, the for me, there's more cons than anything else because you end up basically having to be responsible for all of the um, ancillary things that go along with running your own business. And to be honest, I'm not a great business person. So um, I don't want to have to be figuring out my own uh, withholdings for taxes and calculating my, uh, you know, expenses for my job and overhead. And there's, there's a whole bunch of things that I don't want to have to deal with. Um, that's from the medicine side of things. I don't know how applicable that is on the airline pilot side of independent contracts. Uh, Nick may have a little bit more insight than I do. You know,
3: I, I think it's becoming more and more common, uh, Steph, particularly amongst startup airlines and those that are uh, adopting a, a low cost uh, profile because uh, they see it as a way to cut their overheads. If uh if they just pay a uh, a standard wage and have a middleman, uh, a company who effectively uh, the pilot has to employ himself through, then the uh, the airline has no responsibility at all for the pilot. The pilot isn't employed by the airline; he's employed by a uh, this middleman, uh, and the airline therefore doesn't provide anything that jeff and i used to so all my medical bills are covered uh, all my annual medicals if i need a new license that covered if i need a new passport that's covered um all those costs are just standard and i don't have to worry about them because there's a an entire department that makes sure i i have got a medical and i have got a passport and everything is done i get allowances i i basically am treated like a valued employee Uh, A lot of airlines who want to keep all their administrative staff down to an absolute minimum won't undertake any of that and it'll be up to the pilot to organize his entire life. Um, and for me, our job is hard enough as it is. Uh, we work um, you know, pretty long hours, and when you uh, finish flying, particularly if you're working for a low-cost carrier base in a different country, you've got to get yourself home. You've still got all this admin to deal with. You've got to find time to organize this yourself and pay for it yourself. Um, so, uh, I just see it as a way for an airline to get out of its responsibilities. Having said that, uh, as an airline gets bigger and as the pilots get organized, uh, they are more likely then to um, be uh, to organize a union or join a union, become unionized. And then they'll realize, because they've realized that this is no way to actually. Uh, um, Earn a living in a decent airline, you, you really want to have your airline uh, be responsible and look after you as a proper employee, rather than as a sort of uh, contracted worker who's coming in and doing a job for them. That and uh, being a pilot in an airline, you're not contracted. You, the pilots are vital to airlines; they're one of their main employees, after all. And to have them there as really as third parties is it, just i think it's ludicrous but i guess personal opinion
1: yeah safety and numbers you know if you if you're part of a large organization um you know the your your liability is especially legal liabilities are definitely minimized when you are represented by a large group of pilots Um, so uh, Stephen ivy in our chat room is a survey pilot and he's saying he says i can tell you that the contractor aspect of being a pilot is covered in legalities that one survey company that wanted to hire me wanted to make me responsible for the aircraft which means i needed to get insurance and if something happens it's on my dime not theirs uh so you know that's uh, yeah not not a great way of oh, uh, yeah. being employed
3: uh, let's just think about something simple jeff like health insurance which mm-hmm. Not so much of a problem for you, uh, because you're generally flying within the United States. But uh, uh, if you're a pilot and you're a contract pilot, and you fall ill in a foreign country, you better have pretty damn good health insurance, and their standard travel insurance won't cover it, because if you get travel insurance for a holiday, generally speaking, it'll only cover you for like 30 days in a year. Mm -hmm. You can't be out of the country uh, for more than that. So all of a sudden you find you don't have health insurance when you're down rate and that's just appalling so what do you do you go back to work unfit that's that's just Not a dreadful job. position to be in yeah it is so uh we at the
1: APG are against these individual contracts absolutely uh, yeah it's interesting yeah. though i i don't know maybe my perception is flawed or skewed because uh, wasn't it one of the companies that was either Ryan or um easyjet that uh, they were, uh, I think the pilots in Germany were being taken off the individual contract system and put into a a regular contract and actually hired by the company and represented by.
3: I believe that was easy. And I also believe that Ryanair have now uh, had to accept a unionization for some of their pilots. So, But you see, they employ pilots from so many different countries, and they're all under individual contracts. It's very hard for the pilots to get together in a group.
1: Yeah, well, we think it's a a scourge uh, of the industry, and it's our hope that these individual contracts or part-time contracts disappear.
3: Yeah. Uh, and, and mainly not from a personal, we all want to make money, although, of course, we do. Uh, apart from the joy of flying, we also want to make a decent working wage on it. But because of the safety aspects that it forces these pilots into to, to fly when they're not fully fit or to do jobs that they wouldn't otherwise be happy doing because of the problems that they have uh, with these part-time contracts. All right. Time for
1: this week's installment of plane tails take, take it away old pilot
3: the old pilot's plane tails one of our aircraft is missing I'm a bit of a fan of old black and white wartime movies. Classics like The Cruel Sea, The Dam Busters, 12 O'clock High, and One of Our Aircraft is Missing. The title of that last one brought to mind the continuing speculation that surrounds the fate of Malaysia Flight 370, the Boeing 777 that disappeared over the South China Sea en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Whilst that is fairly recent and well-known to most of us, there are a few other fascinating stories to be found in the dusty drawers of history. Let's take, for example, the case of Begich and Boggs. They were aboard a Cessna 310 out of Anchorage, bound for Juneau in Alaska. The date was the 16th of October 1972, and they were on a political junket, since Nick Begich was a member of the US House of Representatives from Alaska and Hale Boggs was the House Majority Leader for the House of Representatives and a member of the Warren Commission. The only other passenger was Russell Brown, an aide. The aircraft was operated by Pan Alaska Airways, but perhaps surprisingly the pilot was only able to fly under visual flight rules since he was the only pilot on board and the machine had no autopilot. Since the pilot was also the president of Pan Alaska and the chief pilot, it seems that he was well qualified for the flight ahead, but the weather did not look conducive to a flight under visual conditions. Departing from Anchorage, they set course to follow the airway Victor 317 and contacted the flight service station for the latest weather information. The flight service station specialists confirmed that they had appropriate emergency gear and a locator beacon on board, and then passed the pilot the weather for Cordova, Yakuta, Sitka and Juneau, plus the pertinent area forecasts. Ahead of the small craft was the Chugach Mountain Range, and the conditions along that proposed flight were not appropriate for a flight under visual rules. Indeed, their route followed the Portage Pass, which led through the high ground and was forecast to be closed due to weather. After speaking to Anchorage Flight Service, nothing more was ever heard from the Cessna. On board the aircraft, there was supposed to be an extensive survival kit, including food for each person for two weeks, and also an emergency locator transmitter. Since the aircraft itself wasn't equipped with an ELT, the pilot was supposed to be carrying a portable emergency transmitter. The chief pilot's personal ELT was found after his aircraft was reported missing in the cabin of another Pan-Alaska's aircraft at Fairbanks. When the aircraft became overdue for its arrival as you know, a search was initiated, and considering the importance of the passengers, it was thorough and extensive. Almost immediately, an airborne HC-130 Hercules was diverted from its mission to commence a search that, for its time, became one of the most extensive in aviation history. Search areas were established which covered thousands of square miles and were covered numerous times by aircraft of the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Coast Guard, the Civil Air Patrol, as well as civil aircraft and helicopters. In addition, U.S. Coast Guard cutters, merchant marine and fishing vessels covered the Prince William Sound, the Gulf of Alaska and the Icy Straits area. Much of Portage Pass was also searched twice by ground personnel. Even after 39 days of intensive effort, neither the wreckage of the plane nor the pilots' and passengers' remains were ever found. The events surrounding the crash led to much speculation, suspicion and numerous conspiracy theories, most of which centred on Boggs' membership of the Warren Commission, which was investigating the assassination of President J.F. Kennedy. Intriguingly, Boggs had dissented from the commission's majority who supported the single-bullet theory, commenting that he had strong doubts about it. The previous year, Boggs had also made a speech on the floor of the House strongly attacking the FBI director J. Edgar Hoover and the whole of the FBI. A month later, he went even further, stating that
1: Over the post-war years, we have granted to the elite and secret police within our system vast new powers over the lives and liberties of the people. At the request of the trusted and respected heads of those forces and their appeal to the necessities of national security, we have exempted those grants of power from due accounting and
3: strict surveillance. There is a bound as to why the aircraft went down and why it has never been found. None of which were lessened following the publication of a book by Robert Ludlum, *The Matarese Circle*, in which Ludlum suggests that Boggs was murdered to stop his investigation into the Kennedy assassination. Now, someone else of a rather different ilk also went missing in the wilds of North America. The Flying Bandit was a Canadian criminal with a remarkable record of nefarious deeds. Ken Leishman was born in Holland, Manitoba, and grew up in a troubled home. Working as a mechanic, he learned to fly and purchased an old Eronka aircraft, which he used to fly between the farms he visited for work. When the repair company he worked for closed, he decided to make his money in less honourable ways. His first theft was in 1957 in Toronto, when, posing as a friend of a bank manager, he talked his way into the manager's office to supposedly chat about a business loan. Once inside, he produced a gun and used it to persuade the manager to write him a cheque for $10,000. He questioned the poor man about his life and family, and then coerced him to take him to a teller and cash the cheque, whilst using the knowledge he had gained to appear as his friend. Afterwards, he took the man with him to his getaway car and then let him go. A few months later, he tried the same trick again, but in a different Toronto bank. This manager was made of sterner stuff and refused to go along with Leishman, despite being threatened with the gun. Realising that the game was up, the flying bandit tried to make his escape, but was tripped up by a lady customer and then tackled by a teller less than a block from the bank. He was arrested and sentenced to 12 years. After being released on parole, he tried to make his way as a door-to-door salesman, but with a wife and seven children to support He soon went back to a life of crime. His next theft was on a much grander scale when he and four accomplices stole $385,000 of gold bullion worth well over $2.5 million in today's currency from Winnipeg International Airport. In previous years, he used to watch the aircraft at Winnipeg and realised that gold shipments from Red Lake were being flown into the airport to then be taken by Air Canada to the Mint in Ottawa. An accomplice was sent up to Red Lake to watch for a shipment to be prepared, whilst Leishman faked some overalls and acquired a few waybills from an unoccupied Air Canada desk. When a shipment left Red Lake, Leishman and his accomplices stole an Air Canada truck drove onto the tarmac to meet the inbound aircraft and, using the stolen waybills, persuaded the loaders to put the gold onto their truck. Their plan worked like a breeze and they drove off considerably richer than they had been that morning. They first hid the ingots in a freezer and then a backyard from which they planned to make a further move onto remote farmland but a blizzard delayed them. The largest gold theft in Canada's history had, however, generated considerable attention from the police. Whilst they were waiting for the legendary blizzard of 1966 to clear, the local force, who were checking up on Leishman's associates, discovered the hall, and before long, the flying bandit was back behind bars, but this time of steel. However, Whilst awaiting trial, he managed to escape, along with ten others. Taking a Chevy from the parking lot, and with roadblocks going up, he made his way to Steinbach. It was here that he managed to steal an aircraft, fully living up to his nickname, and with his Gold Heist crew, he made it across the border into the United States. Leishman was becoming something of a celebrity, so it didn't take long for a barman in Indiana to recognise him and call the police. He was soon being held in the Vaughan Street Jail in Winnipeg, where he managed to pick the lock of his cell, overpower three guards and escape again over a fence. His final bid for freedom only lasted four hours, and this time he was sentenced to 15 years. He was known to be a charming man and a model prisoner, so only eight years later he was released on parole. He had, however, turned over a new leaf. He moved to Red Lake in Ontario, where he became a bush pilot, and with his family opened up a tourist shop. The couple were, by all accounts, well-liked by the community, and Ken Leishman even served as the chair of the local Chamber of Commerce. However, on December fourteenth, 1979, at the age of 48, Ken was performing a medevac flight out of Red Lake when his plane disappeared in northern Ontario. The following spring a Canadian force's search flight found the wreckage. The bodies of the patient and medical assistant aboard were positively identified, but all they could find of Leishman was his wallet. Since there was nothing in the wreckage to prove that the flying bandit was dead, the theories abounded as to his whereabouts especially after the coroner investigating the accident initially listed him as officially alive. Given his colourful past, there has been great interest in his life, and even a documentary, The Flying Bandit, plus a number of books, have added to his notoriety. But to this day, he has never been found. Now theft may also have been involved in our final story. On the 30th of January 1979, a Varig Boeing 707 flight 967 departed Tokyo bound for Rio de Janeiro in Brazil via Los Angeles. About 120 miles east of Tokyo, whilst flying over the Pacific Ocean, the crew of six suddenly stopped making radio transmissions and all contact with the aircraft was lost. On board the freighter were 53 paintings from the artist Manabu Mabe, which had been in Tokyo for an exhibition and were then worth an estimated 1.24 million US dollars. Despite being relatively close to the coast of Japan, no survivors, bodies, or any sign of either the wreckage or the paintings were ever found. The searchers couldn't even find oil or fuel slicks to mark a possible crash site. Despite the art world being suspicious that the paintings might have been stolen, none have ever emerged. This wasn't the only theory, however. May I take you back to the plain tale, Hunting the Foxbat, which I told on November 11, 2016. In this story, a disgruntled MiG-25 pilot, Victor Belenko, defects with his aircraft to Japan. The Japanese authorities allowed the United States access to the MiG-25, which was dismantled and inspected, before being crated up and given back to the Soviet Union. However, around 20 parts were claimed to be missing, and some have suggested that these parts were being flown to the USA on board Flight 967 for further analysis. The theory goes that the Soviets intercepted and shot down or sabotaged the barrack flight to prevent the parts reaching America. The official report into the loss gives the flight a more likely cause for disappearance and suggests that the crew became unconscious after the aircraft depressurized, and, much in the way that Malaysia Flight 370 may have done, It continued on until it finally crashed into the ocean, never to be seen again. Aircraft disappearances always seem to enliven those with vivid imaginations, whereas the actual reason for a disappearance is usually much more mundane. Accidents happen, and the world is a big place. Music by bensounds.com
1: Another brilliant plane tale by the old pilot.
3: <laughs> Glad you like that one. I've got another very similar one, a slightly different vein uh, next week, uh, which I think we're going to call another of our aircraft is missing.
1: Another? <laughs> <laughs> no, no why? Now, you titled this one of our, I mean, the old pilot did. One of our aircraft is missing, but I think that was what, three on that
3: three. one? Ah, oh, there were three individual people saying one yeah. of our aircraft is missing.
1: Ah, uh, I see. Okay. So, we'll let you yeah. get away with it.
3: <laughs> You're very, very generous.
1: Liz sent this in to us. University of Michigan pilots aborted takeoff broke rules but saved lives. Now, I'm going to object to that headline. Nearly 900 pages of documents attempt to explain a decision a pilot made in 13 seconds. Yeah, isn't that the case? <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah. The National Transportation Safety Board released, just like uh, the movie Sully, another example of it, uh, yeah, uh, re- released a report last week as part of its ongoing investigation into the plane that was supposed to take the Michigan men's basketball team to the 2017 Big Ten tournament last March 8th. Instead, The takeoff was aborted before the plane got off the ground at Ypsilanti's Willow Run Airport with the Boeing (laughs) MD-83, Boeing, eventually plowing through a chain link fence and into a ditch. By the way, it's a McDonnell Douglas 83. There were 116 people on board, including the crew, but the only injury was to eventual Big Ten Tournament MVP, Derek Walton Jr., who sustained a laceration on his thigh that required stitches. The NTSB's report, which included statements from the crew, exhaustive weather analysis and equipment assessments, does not assign blame, nor does it present a concrete conclusion of what went wrong. It does not address the fact that the weather updates were scarce. The latest wind measurements the pilots received were two or two to three hours old because the instruments had blown down. Of course, in this case, I don't think it had anything to do, you know, with the with the present situation of them taking off, the, uh, uh, the, the wind measurements at the time uh, really were inconsequential, in my opinion, to what happened during the takeoff. But they were possibly consequential for what happened the uh, two or three days before the takeoff. Uh, by the way, this is me speaking, not the article. Uh, the, uh, the winds at the time in that area of the country were very, very high. And uh, the the airplane that they used for this charter was parked on the ramp for for the I think at least forty eight hours before this charter flight, and uh, yeah, the uh, the airplane the MD eighty three doesn't have flight control locks or anything. So they, these these controls, especially on a <laughs> on a Mad Dog, they're not hydraulically powered. So they're just flopping around. So the wind's blowing. It can really. You know, bang things around quite a bit, and that's what is suspected happened in this case, uh, that they think that uh, one of the control rods for the uh, control tab for the elevator was bent, out of shape, or broken. Um, and of course, there was no way for the pilots to know that that had occurred. There's no physical evidence during a walk around. There's nothing that you can see in your instrumentation in the aircraft. And the only way you're going to know is when you get to the point that these pilots did when they were rolling down the runway for takeoff and the captain says, hey, what's going on? The yoke used to adjust the altitude of an aircraft, I think they mean attitude, felt heavy. Well, I guess you could say both. Thirteen seconds after the takeoff began, Radloff, the captain, said, abort, and hit the brakes. The co-pilot said, no, not above, he said, referring to a particular speed. Not above, don't abort above V1 like that. And then it says, uh, the co-pilot said, understandably, uh, added a couple of expletives that were removed from the transcript. Uh, The captain explained to his co-pilot that he didn't have a choice. It wasn't flying. So. Basically, uh, it ends here at the at the end. Um, the NTSB report revealed that the left elevator, partly responsible for controlling an aircraft's pitch, had malfunction. Yeah, like fifty percent of what controls the aircraft's pitch had malfunction. This is from what Wired magazine. No, Detroit this is from uh, Detroit News. Yeah. yeah. So you know they're not aviation experts. So, um, but I my objection here is. They did not break any rules because one of the rules of aviation is you know, if you you abort a takeoff for uh, a fire, uh, an engine failure, or if you don't think the airplane's going to be able to fly. And in this case, it doesn't matter what the speed is. If the airplane ain't going you, you to fly, you're not going to fly. You're going to, you have to abort. And exactly. uh, there's nothing else you can do. And in this case, it, it worked out amazingly well.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, people are always looking at the, you know, well, what if, what if, what if, but um, clearly the decision was made quick enough and with enough information on the pilot flying's part to do the right thing.
3: Yeah, this guy made such a brave decision and I, I really admire him for it because it is really hard and kind of goes against all your simulator training uh, to abort above uh, V1, because above that speed, you know you're not going to have enough room left to uh, stop before the end of the runway. But you're quite right, Jeff, Uh, we're all uh, aware that if you have incontrovertible evidence the airplane is not going to fly, then it is safer to abort. So safer means it's much better to go off the end of the runway doing 50 knots than it is to try and persist with the takeoff that is not going to work and go off the end of the run, runway doing 150 knots. Because in that case, the second case, you're almost certainly going to kill people. In the first case, you're just going to damage the airplane and everyone's probably going to walk away. So, yeah, it very difficult, very brave, and particularly since it was like a feeling in the water almost, this airplane doesn't feel right. Um, I think that was a brilliant decision and an
1: example of making the opposite uh decision is that uh bizjet I think it was a Gulfstream that attempted takeoff in uh, somewhere outside of Boston and mm-hmm. they had control locks engaged now they knew or suspected that that was a problem but they continued the takeoff anyway and that the resulted plane, in
2: airplane is not going to fly in that case yeah not the way you want it to
1: and if they had aborted the takeoff As soon as they knew that that was an issue, then everybody would probably still be alive in that case. Unfortunately, everybody died in that particular incident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I agree. Uh, The right decision was made. It was just that feeling that this is not going to fly. So, abort.
2: I do have a question. Um, Do you guys ever practice scenarios like that where you're in the simulator where you're given a situation where the aircraft is not going to fly? I've never seen it. I, I didn't. I've never heard of anyone having that scenario. So. Yeah,
3: no. Uh, okay. I think because there's a very good chance you'll end up with a red screen, um, and we definitely don't train for those situations. A oh, red screen is when the simulator's crashed.
1: Yeah, we don't. Right. We um, try to take care of our simulators.
3: Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just that I mean, think they're worried about the psychological effects it will have on the crew. Sure. Uh, oh yeah, if, that's what they're worried about. They're not worried about yeah. the simulators.
2: Well, I guess from devil's advocate (laughs) standpoint here, you know, you build muscle memory for certain things. And if you don't have, if that's not a, a possibility in your mind, you know, in terms of things that you've done as muscle memory, you may not be able to override that overwhelming, you know, knowledge or muscle memory that you should perhaps continue to take off, even though something doesn't seem quite right. That's just my
1: thought on it no even I, though I, you
2: know you know the airplane's not gonna i agree not gonna fly.
1: i think that uh as long as it's anybody but me i think that that's the kind of thing that should be uh pilots should be exposed to in the same manner <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I'm,
2: from- I'm not saying i'm not saying that necessarily that's something that you need to do in the simulator i was just i was just curious yeah um and just yeah. purely from a
3: devil's advocate I mean I, I, I think I've actually done it but not intentional it's a bit hard to say uh, whether it was intentional or. Not. Early on in my uh, captain's career, I did a check where we were doing wind shear training and um, we got uh, we're above 100 knots getting quite close to V1 and we got uh, a wind shear ahead warning. So I said go and hit toga. Because we were very close to V1, and then we got about a 50 knot drop in airspeed uh, as uh, a wind shear hit us. That's a big wind uh, shear. We were still on the runway, and I went, "Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> Never mind." <No. laughs> so I went, "Go." toga stop it was almost that <laughs> quick and uh, we screeched to a halt and i think we stopped we might have just trickled off the end of the runway but the fact was we lived but you i mean when you get that amount of uh, speed drop you you give uh, speed has effectively come below flying speed now so you can't physically get airborne anymore until you've regained that 50 knots somehow yeah so uh,
1: yeah that was an interesting that was a situation one. where initially you thought the airplane could fly then immediately thereafter no the airplane will not fly exactly, not without 50 yeah. knots of speed yeah yes huh okay well great question by the way um oh. uh thank you Steph. and who was it that asked the question uh liz thanks for uh bringing up that uh report Ooh. from that um uh, <laughs>
0: Are you okay?
3: <laughs> oh, sorry, I was just being Liz bringing out that report. Oh, okay. Oh, bringing it up. Got it. By the yes. way, have
1: ever mentioned Very that uh, Liz is our producer and she does a great job.
3: And we she love She does. Yeah. yeah. That was from Detroit News. Great job.
1: Yeah. Uh Robert. Uh, Writes, uh, hello, as a passenger, I never get tired of looking out the window and seeing the world from above. Over the years, I've even become accustomed to certain landmarks along the way on frequently traveled trips. Can I assume that as uh, you're up front, you also enjoy the scenery and you do look for certain visual landmarks along the way for fun, not navigation? And in a somewhat related piece of audio feedback, I grouped these two together. uh, Alex sent us this.
5: Well, good afternoon, crew. This is Alex from Northwest Alabama. Uh, I'm an astrophysicist by schooling and had the wonderful opportunity to be seated appropriately on a flight from Dallas to Heathrow years ago where I could witness a meteor shower over the Atlantic Ocean, which is one of the darkest places on the earth. You know, it allowed me to see hundreds of meteors per hour uh, as opposed to just a few uh, that you normally see around city lights. And uh, Felt like that was a really cool thing to witness, and, and I'm wondering what the uh, the coolest, uh, most unexplainable, scariest celestial or astronomical um, or atmospheric phenomena you guys have witnessed in the cockpit or even as as passengers in your career in the skies. Um, be interested to hear what you guys come back with. And I've got to go check the METARs and TAFs for my uh, flight lesson after work today. Uh, clear skies, and thanks again for the show.
1: Thank you, Alex. Great question. So, thank you both, Robert and Alex. So, sightseeing, yeah, um, I do. Uh, I I can't say that every pilot that I fly with does care anything about looking outside and looking at landmarks and stuff, but I'm always fascinated by. Especially, I do most of my flying in the U.S. and and seeing the the river systems and how our major uh, cities in the in our country were established on. Uh, on rivers because of uh, transportation and such um and uh, so i'm i'm always looking outside looking at stuff on the ground um and as far as um interesting or awesome sites as far as astro astronomical or in that realm i'd say that uh, flying in the northern hemispheres at night uh, the, uh, the 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 northern lights or the aurora borealis Probably the most amazing thing that I've witnessed as a pilot.
0: Nick? No? all <laughs> I'm just
3: wondering how long we could stretch the silence out. That's I'm okay. Good. It'll be all
1: gone in the audio. That's okay. Just no, you could take as long um, as you want and I'll
3: you Yeah, know, yeah. I love I that that the other lights. They're good. Uh, I, I'm disappointed in that I've only ever seen green. I don't think I've seen the multicolored ones that I know that can sometimes occur. Um I uh, quite enjoy uh, seeing San Elmo's fire as well, which oh, you don't like occurs. that. Yeah, well, I know. Usually, it occurs <laughs> yeah. on the edges of when you're in cloud, on the edges of thunderstorms, and there's a lot of static electricity around. It's pretty, and but you know what's going to happen. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's often a precursor to yeah. being whacked by a bolt of lightning. So, uh, yeah, but it, it is it is kind of amazing to watch that. Uh, you know all these forked, uh, miniature forked uh, streams of uh, ele- uh, static electricity discharge on your windscreen. Have it you ever seen like- a ball? Like no, form? No. Oh, I've seen a ball
1: that is kind of like forming out there. Yeah, and that's when you really start thinking, "Oh my gosh!" Okay, wow. Like start looking but away I- because it's going to get bright here very fast. Oh. Yeah.
3: I think the most amazing thing I saw was uh, noctilucent cloud. Um, now that's uh, a cloud that is only occurs at a very specific time of day. Um, it's a, a cloud-like phenomenon, and it's in the upper atmosphere. I'm talking fifty miles above the Earth's surface, so well above the atmosphere. Um, so it's usually between about two hundred and fifty and two hundred eighty thousand feet high, and it's ice crystals. In the uh, upper reaches of the atmosphere, just the, you know, almost in outer space. And you've got to have the sun has just set. You've got to be at a very northern or reasonably northern latitude. And the angle of the sun strikes the, uh, the lice crystals and way above you performs this amazing uh, display of uh, bright blue clouds it's i managed to take some pictures of them one day and i had to then go home and look it up because uh, i had no idea what it was uh and uh occurred to me when i was uh, going past moscow one day um so that that was probably the most remarkable thing i've ever seen never seen that no. wow
2: that did remind me of something that i saw not while i was flying but riding as a passenger on an airliner um I'm, I'm with you guys. I like looking out the window. I like looking at landmarks. I like knowing where I am. I like trying to guess where I am based on what I see and then trying to figure out if I was correct or not. Uh, that's always been interesting to me. I like maps and, and trying to figure out if what I'm seeing on the ground corresponds to the map that I have in my head. Um, but anyway, that the, what I saw coming um, on this particular flight, we were I must've been going, coming back from Salt Lake city at some point. Cause um, so we were flying just crossing the front range in Colorado um, from the Rockies, from, from the West to the East, as you come into the Denver area and right at that moment coming across the Rockies um, there was snow on the mountains of the front range. There was kind of a cloud layer on top of the very edge of the front range and uh, not on either side. So you could see mountains to the West and then Denver to the East but it occurred right at the moment where you could see the Terminator line as well. So at, at the point right above the Rockies to the East where Denver was, it was very dark and all the lights were on in the city and to the West, it was still bright and almost daylight. Mm. And that was really kind of neat. So it was just a a cool coincidence, coincidence the way everything lined up.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I love watching the shadow. If you're flying away from the sun, as the sun sets, You can see the shadow of the surface of the Earth being projected against the sky in front of you, uh, and it forms this uh, curved, dark ring. Uh, I think that's gorgeous. And
1: sometimes Um, it messes with me. I'm thinking that I'm about to fly in some kind of a cloud formation, (laughs) and then go, wait a minute, I'm not seeing anything on the radar, but uh, I'm clearly seeing some really dark clouds. Then I realized, yeah. oh, it's the Terminator line.
3: Of course, I'm a Terminator. That's uh, absolutely right. And uh, when it comes to spotting things on the ground, though, I mean, I like going, uh, we're over the Sahara Desert. That's about as good as I am. Or that's uh, Hudson Bay. I mean, that's enormous. Or, oh, look, there's Greenland. That's about as good as I am. But I did one day, I mean, we had one of our new cabin crew was on the flight deck, uh, just popped in to ask, we want a cup of tea. And we we're approaching. Um, uh, Newfoundland. So I pointed down at uh, this big iceberg down there, and I said, uh, "Did you know, by the way, uh, that's the iceberg that sunk the Titanic?" And she said, "No." I said, "Yeah, yeah, we we plotted, we know its position because it's so big." So uh, yeah, that that's <laughs> the one. And she said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, they've been on it. They they can tell from the paint that's been left on <laughs> the, the side paint's still there from the Titanic. I suppose, yeah, that it was that was the one that sung the Titanic." they so went away. <laughs> she went away to go tell all her friends. <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> so yeah, I guess the answer, uh, Robert, is uh, that we do enjoy playing. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, APG crew. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, I have fun.
2: <laughs> You're allowed.
1: Uh, thank you. Uh, let's see. So we're getting close to the end here. I mean, not the end of the, the world. The, the, <laughs> the end is near. <laughs> the end of the episode. And so I'm looking through some of these things here uh, quickly. Oh, Texas Charlie writes. Um, and, and we've, talked about this before on the show but it's worth mentioning again he said howdy again guys and gal sometimes he's from texas that's why howdy uh sometimes there are questions that shouldn't need to be asked but because it's just a stupid question except when someone had an idea that was even more stupid why are the runways at some airports bumpy or hilly attached is a link to a video of a monarch air jet having a bit of trouble in a high crosswind I think the pilot could have stuck the landing If the runway hadn't dropped away suddenly Even so, you can always go around Oh, and he says cue the music And I, I had not cued the music So let's go and do this Oh, that's going green, going green. <laughs> Never mind You can
6: always go around If it don't look right
0: Coming
1: down You can always go around. It's been a while since we played that one. And going green too. Pardon?
2: And going green too.
1: Yeah, both of those. Yeah, thank you, um, Texas Charlie. For uh, I wish that I'd noticed that in your feedback, and I would have queued it up right here in the in the note. Anyway, as always, love the show and the crew. You're the best. Adios, Texas Charlie. So Texas Charlie, he uh, sent us a link to Facebook. And uh, has a video of this monarch error, and I think we've all seen either this one or ones like it, uh, where, again, there is a very, very long focal length lens used to shoot down. The approach end to the departure end of the runway and mm-hmm. uh, lens compression, I believe, is one of the terms used for this, where if it's a long focal length lens and the subject is pretty far away, that it has a way of kind of compressing what you're seeing in the yeah. image. So,
2: not only does the runway look exceptionally short, like miniature Like, how is this aircraft going (laughs) to land and stop on the end? It's you can see every little bump exaggerated because everything, you know, instead of being the normal looking length is all of a sudden compressed into this short area.
1: And that's not to say that there are some runways that are kind of like this, but not to this extent. I mean, this looks just, you know, extreme. And I don't think we can give this Monarch well, maybe it was Captain Allen. In that case, we could give him the benefit of the doubt. on uh,
3: the <laughs> But if not... Um, well, there's certainly some runways where you can use the fact that if you float a bit and try and push it on, that's when you hit the upslope and you hit it with a bit of a bang. Because there are some ways runways that do have a bit of a bump on them. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. It's just that it's too expensive to take it out it's the easy answer. It's not, they're not supposed to, you'd love to have,
0: like, yeah, that you'd
3: that love problem. to be able to play a snooker or, or a pool on every runway, but they're not all people aren't prepared to pay you that amount of money. Sometimes if you get a little bit of uh, uh, sinkage in a runway until it gets severe, they're not going to pay to rip it up and start again. Yeah. I do remember my first takeoff out of Cape town. Uh, I was new captain and, uh, never been down there before. And, uh, the first officer is doing the takeoff because I did the landing because it was a new destination. and I uh, But I've got the throttles, which is the standard on uh, our fleet or on our company, and uh, we're about halfway down the runway, and I'm looking at the end of the runway going, my God, this is short, and we're, we're just about at V1, and I'm not going to stop, so I just think, well, the safest thing is to go toga, so I – Apply full power instead of going toga. And then, of course, we go, <laughs> go a bit further down the runway. The rest of the runway reveals itself because it was just a, a hum, but I couldn't quite see it all the way to the end, and I felt off such a fool. But.
1: but I've been there so many times. It's like, right, right. oh, this yes. is not ar- this is not good, uh, especially <laughs> yeah. when you're landing and you're thinking, oh no, there- oh okay, there is a lot more runway. <laughs> I can
3: see it now. You know, there's a couple of miles more.
1: Of yeah.
2: As looking was back funny. at a runway I've landed at in Utah, Morgan County, up in the mountains, and it's got a. 2% upslope. That's
1: kind of yeah. significant.
3: That's so loud.
2: Yeah, it's 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 noticeable.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <Very> <laughs>
0: noticeable.
1: And there are some, uh, as Captain Nick says, there are some runways that we attempt to get a smooth landing out of uh, where, you know, if you get it down in the very beginning of the runway, you're going to be okay. But if you wait too long, the runway comes up to meet you. Yes. And yeah, uh, yes. it's never a good thing. Hello. Yeah. Hi, bam. <laughs> Ah, Norfolk, Virginia is one of those places. Are you pleased
3: to see me? (laughs) Yeah.
1: No, I am not. Uh, Nick uh, asks a question about, um, let's see. He was sitting in the back of the aircraft, a Ryanair flight from the UK to Italy. He was sitting in the back of the aircraft and the load at the back was light. So people assigned seats several rows forward, decided to change seats and move to a seat on a quieter row at the rear. About 5 minutes before pushback, the cabin crew started checking passengers' boarding passes. After sc- discovering that several passengers were not sitting in the correct seats, they moved all those sat in the incorrect seats to their correct positions, saying, "We can't have more than 14 people in the last 4 rows." I assume this must have been a weight and balance issue. If so, how is the weight and balance calculated? Are there sensors that calculate if the aircraft's out of balance? Are there any aircraft types that are more susceptible to weight and balance issues? Long aircraft like the A34600, Nick, apart from the obvious issue that would happen with light aircraft, regional turboprops, jets. Keep up the awesome work, folks. Cheers, Nick Wilson in the UK. I think there was just a passenger harassment policy there
3: going <laughs> yes. on. I, I, I was thinking perhaps there weren't more than 14 seats in the last four rows. So. You couldn't have more than 14 extra, people. Extra people,
0: funny... two people per seat? <laughs> yes. like, no, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, get off your lap. I mean, his lap. Yeah. You
1: can't do that <laughs> exactly right.
2: What kind of airline do you think we run here?
1: I mean, I have heard of situations where I don't think I've ever experienced it myself. And if it's happened, I, I didn't have. know it was happening. Okay, tell us.
2: Um, It happened to me on a lightly loaded 737-800 um, and it was Southwest airlines where they do not assign seats. So everyone kind of piled in the front and I think, I can't remember now, but anyway, everyone was kind of grouped all together cause there were like 20 people on the plane. I said, we need you to spread out, out a little bit.
1: <laughs> some of you go back to the back. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, some of you need to move back.
1: Oh. So, um, Interesting. Yeah.
3: Yeah. It, it would be a weight and balance thing. Uh, and, um, quite honestly, even on a long airplane, uh, it's not going to make a vast amount of difference, but of course the cabin crew, there's no judge, uh, to how many people you can have out of position. Um, cause the weight and balance is calculated on assuming everyone's in the right seat. So the cabin crew are quite correct to go around and go, uh, please be in your correct seats for takeoff and landing. Once we're airborne, you can move around the cabin and sit wherever you like. But um, it's just because it is feasibly possible to move the aircraft out of limits or or at least certainly out of a convenient trim setting and the flight deck won't be um, sort of prepared for that. Um, But you'd probably have to move quite a few people, certainly in a big airplane. Very good
1: uh just quickly before we end the show Orson uh writes interesting article involving Acme it's regarding the uh, Boeing 717 and he said did you ever get a turn in the 717 and uh, no at Acme they decided to classify that as a separate category because of its advanced cockpit displays and even though it's a variant of the DC9 um they decided to make it a separate category at Acme Airlines. So I know I never flew the 717 and I probably never will because it is less uh, money per per hour. The pay rate is lower.
2: It's beneath you. It is be beneath honest. me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And although many people would say nothing is beneath you, Jeff. And <laughs> um, I'm kidding, obviously. Uh, no, you're not.
2: No,
3: not really. <laughs> Jane, is beneath you.
1: Yeah, he is. True. Well, down on the not, yes, he is. <laughs> Quite a bit so. And Colonel Jeff, we heard uh, some audio feedback from him at the beginning of the show. He also was listening, catching up with the uh, latest episodes, and we were talking about St. Martin and taking off, landing, and uh, the uh, I forgot who sent in this, the feedback, but uh, they were saying that the only airline that this person saw was American, Taking off in the opposite direction, and Colonel Jeff, Captain Jeff, the good-looking one, uh, said the only restriction for American that I can find for uh, for Saint Martin is that we can't take off on runway 10 with a tailwind. I've only I've been to SXM. Note that stuff XM. XM. not Q, not Q. Uh, okay. Numerous times for some reason my brain is working, functioning okay today. Uh, numerous times flying the 757 and the 737, and I have never taken off on runway 28. I don't know what he saw or when, but it seems pretty odd. So Colonel Jeff is calling you a liar. Whoever said no, I'm just kidding. He's not. He's just never <laughs> seen it himself, and mm. it must have been an unusual situation. So. Uh, I'm not sure if we have time for Sean's, um, feedback regarding Uber for airplanes. So we're going to go ahead and save that for the next show, but we did actually cover more than I thought we were going to on today's show. So, um, thank you everyone for uh, a lot of,
2: a lot of quality, uh, feedback.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. That's what makes the show is your feedback. Really? Um, cause we were just going blah, 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 you know, for most of the show. Um, Jay, if
3: everyone wants to know what your shirt says, please. Oh,
1: it says Elon university. that's where my money goes.
2: <laughs> and also where your daughter. That's happens my, happens yeah, to my go daughter to <laughs> goes to
1: school there <laughs> and a very significant so, amount of my money goes there as well. That's why I love it so much and represent, um, so,
2: did they give you that sweatshirt?
1: No, that was something that I no, their, that was something I bought give last year.
3: Your money. <laughs>
1: they should have given they should give me a bunch of these for free. Really. Mm-hmm. They honestly should. Anyway, uh, so that will do it for today's show. Thanks, big thanks to Liz Piper, our producer, for helping mm-hmm. us organize this whole thing and put all the back together on the news and do all the behind the scenes work, all the dirty work that nobody else wants to do. So thank you. White
3: with two sugars, please.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Liz, for your great help and contribution. And uh, again, if you want to learn more about the show and the crew and the community, which is the most important thing about the APG, the community, head over to airlinepilotguide.com and uh, there's other good stuff there as well. And uh, we have apps for your smartphones and tablets, uh, whether you be an iOS person or an Android person, uh, on both platforms, ad-free and free for you to use. So uh, that information can be found at the airlinepilotguide.com website or in this uh, in the show notes for this show 322. Also, uh, we have we're. We're out there in the social medias uh, mm-hmm. stuff. Indeed.
2: Social medias. We're on Twitter. At APG Crew is the handle. You can find all of us there. Our individual contact uh, Twitter information at the top of that page. Um, you could also head over to Facebook, facebook.com slash airline guy, lots of good community interaction going on there, uh, articles and other interesting internet, uh, items shared about aviation on that site, information about meetups. And speaking of meetups and other community events, I'll pass it over to hello.
8: APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team on Slack. We share news and ideas. We suggest episode and clean tales topics. We plan meetups and events get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1 and I'll send you an invitation. That's philel at HI11E1 and see you in Slack.
1: And until next time, wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds. Take care and God bless.
3: Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. I
6: used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I open doors for little old ladies. I help them to their seats.
0: Airline party guy, I'm fly a fly-o-led dog. Oh, airline got guy, he can't
6: land in heavy fog. I got no friends, cause I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. I can land this old plane I can land it just fine
0: well, Airline my guy I'm home
8: fictionalized mentioned implied or accidentally slipped by any of the participants guests or feedback providers you may or may not have heard may or may not believe you may have heard on this or any prior episode of the airline pilot guy podcast
3: it ain't boring
0: i ain't going